prevention. So these are strategies and tips. Remember, we're going to do a broad overview of important things to consider, uh, typical things that uh, individuals experience prior to getting into the very nitty gritty specifics. So bear with me a little bit during this more abstract stuff. Some of this stuff is really important for us to, to remember. First of all, and I harped on this yesterday, we can't emphasize this enough. A trauma-informed approach is extremely important when working with anyone, um, anytime, honestly, because you never know when someone's experienced trauma in their lives. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's very, sadly, it's a very common thing and it's very difficult to predict. And um, it's also uh, difficult to anticipate when it will show up because the way we sort of encode traumatic experiences is like we have this like intense sensory motor experience and we code like little aspects of it. And it's not the entire experience that's necessarily imprinted on our, in our uh, brains, but it's random things about it. And a lot of times they are sensory things. Uh, and, then they, and then our traumatic experiences can be triggered by some sensory experiences. So like some sounds, some feelings, uh, uh, tactile pressure, whatever, those things can be, uh, can trigger trauma. So uh, I think what's really important to remember is that uh, as an, uh, an interventionist or as a service provider, you are part of the environment and uh, you are also part of a legacy, a history of clinical interventions that a person has been subjected to. So regardless of whether you're the best, 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 best interventionist ever, um, you, you still have that legacy to contend with and you are still uh, filling a role that has most likely been uh, filled with trauma for the person. You are uh, a part of the folks who come into someone's life and tell them that uh, they need fixing and, um, and try to fix them. So I'm not saying that's how you approach it. And I'm sure that you guys are more sensitive in that, but I'm just trying to position your current role in that legacy, right? So there's a lot of baggage there that you're gonna have to contend with that you are not responsible for, but that the person you're working with is carrying with their lives. Remember they've been told for a long time that they're broken and that the only role they can fill is that of patient. All right. So, you know, talk about oppression and trauma. So just remember that you're, that, that uh, you don't want to reinforce the trauma that people are experiencing. Um, never forget what folks, those who have been hospitalized, what they go through when they go through the hospital and how traumatic that experience can be. We, re we revisited that yesterday a little bit. Um, you know, the experience of riding into uh, a hospital in a, um, a lot of times in a, in a police car, being searched, uh, being stripped of your belongings, not knowing exactly where you are, disoriented, uh, experiencing, um, uh, just having experienced a traumatic experience with either family or um, in public that led to the um, the commitment into a hospital. Um, there's just a lot going on there. If it's your, again, if it's your first experience in a hospital, um, then just having to deal or the first time you get diagnosed, having to deal with this shift in your self perception from being a typical person to this person with this social label that um, let's be honest is very stigmatized and has a lot of uh, negative baggage associated with it. So that, that grieving process of first being diagnosed is not something to be underestimated and also a traumatic experience in of itself. And that's what I'm referring to here when I talk about the identity shift of what it means to become a person with mental illness, uh, because it's that label, you know, that, that is, it's really powerful. Um, and those of you who are attending this, who are in recovery, um, you, I'm, I'm sure you understand this uh, in a deeper way than uh, than um, other folks could. And so your uh, your understanding there is critical uh, in helping folks uh, move along in the recovery as well. So it's just coping with a lost past uh, and a lost future, you know, because uh, people's plans change immediately. If you uh, if you're in college and you're uh, there with all your uh, your friends and everyone's on this trajectory that's normative and everything's happy go lucky um, and uh, 
you know, uh, I'm thinking about one person individual I worked with, got into some drug use, did a little too much LSD one night, had a psychotic episode and uh, received a diagnosis. And um, all of a sudden he was no longer part of his group anymore. He was outside of his group and had to watch the trajectory go in a different way. Um, and that is a traumatic in itself. I encourage you guys to check out this website right here mindfreedom.org, uh, personal stories. It's, uh, again, I'm not getting a dime out of anything here. Um, this is part of the anti-psychiatry movement, and I'm not trying to advocate an anti-psychiatry uh, perspective here. Why I think this website is worth reading is just seeing how folks who have had extremely negative experiences with psychiatry, because it does happen, not everybody, of course, but what that feels like and how people relate to that, those stories can be, uh, a lot of those stories can be found here. And I don't know, I find it, I have my students read it all the time because um, I think it's helpful for them to remember uh, essentially what position um, the, the therapist or the interventions can hold in a person's eyes after having these experiences. Okay. And yes, I, I do want to emphasize, please do not hesitate to share stories that you think will contribute to this um, and ask questions in the chat room. Uh, we really want to get your participation. All right, so a refresher on self-efficacy, right? Different from self-esteem. Self-esteem is what we're used to talking about. That's just feeling good about yourself or uh, feeling good about what you're worth. Self-efficacy is thinking or believing you're able to overcome challenge, right? And that's a major one, and it's very distinct. You can have great self-esteem, uh, but poor self-efficacy, actually. Um, a lot of times they go together, but you can have one and not the other. The reason we talk about self-efficacy here is because uh, a lot of folks won't uh, take on challenges because they have extremely low self-efficacy because of their history um, and uh, repeated uh, 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 potential failures that they've experienced. So that is a key there to uh, motivation because a lot of folks will say that they're not motivated. You remember I, I got a little, little soapbox about motivation yesterday. Um, I'll probably do it again today sometime. I'm doing it right now. Uh, folks will often say that uh, someone is not motivated, but that's not the case. It's actually somebody probably with very low self-efficacy and not feeling like they can um, they can overcome the challenges. So be the hope dealer here, remember, not the hope stealer. Come in, focus on strengths, communicate hope and optimism, but don't but don't do so in a, in, in a like a fake pedantic way, right? Like it's just as bad to go in there and be like, ah, oh, everything's okay, you're gonna be fine, everything's fine. That's it's not no, it's not true, right? And the person knows that. Uh, uh, it's challenge. It's hard. Life is difficult. Share those stories, share your difficulties. Um, one way I always build rapport with folks and um, some, so, uh, some people would give me a slap on the hand sometimes in the hospital, uh, but I would share a lot of personal information uh, because it, that's what you do with people you actually bond with and that's how you form rapport. So I would always use personal stories. Of course, you, know, you need to do what you feel comfortable with. Uh, some folks do not feel comfortable sharing that at all. Some feel, some feel it's unprofessional. Um, I disagree. I think it's unprofessional if you focus only on yourself and it's all about you and you're not talking about others, but you can really use your own stories to highlight uh, um, challenges in your life, to highlight how difficult life is, to, um, to, to give examples, uh, and, and those things help build rapport because it makes you human uh, in, uh, with the other person, and you, you guys actually have a human interaction, which I would say clinical interactions don't feel like human interactions often. So, you emphasize the positives, but you don't ignore the negatives. You challenge negative thinking, but you don't completely discount it. You just challenge the stuff that you know is wrong with evidence. So when somebody is saying something like, oh, I can never succeed or I always fail, those are the kind of things you can challenge immediately by bringing up evidence of success, evidence of overcoming challenge, 
Um, if, you know, a person who's, who was recently hospitalized, uh, or maybe even years ago got out and, um, uh, you know, was on progress to the recovery, you emphasize those progress, those forms of progress. Uh, and that's, that's like challenging the negative thinking. You're being real, but you're also, uh, not harping on only the negative there. Uh, an, another way to do the self-efficacy things, you guys remember I was talking about making sure you always target the low-hanging fruit. That is a major, major, major intervention skill here uh, because it, the, the, the quick successes are the things that help people move along in that self-efficacy that help them build up the courage and the, um, uh, uh, the motivation to take on bigger challenges. Remember, there's nothing worse than setting up uh, somebody for failure with something that is way too difficult. It'll just reinforce the perception of low self-efficacy and compromise your rapport because you know the person will be like, well, every time somebody, this so-and-so comes along, they just give me this stuff that's too hard to do, I can't stand it. You know. So um, I'll address that later when I talk about finding the just right challenge. Uh, so making sure that you, you know, you praise the process and the effort. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to make this sound like it's, it's like a childish thing, but like I do this with my kids all the time, right? Um, because you got to praise the, the, uh, the hard work. And like I've learned that over time that to not focus on the, the actual product itself. So like what my child or children have uh, actually produced because it doesn't, you know, it, it matters, but it's not really what matters at this stage. It's the effort that they're putting into it. So making sure that you, when someone's trying hard, even if it, it ends in failure, that the, the effort itself is something that is praised and, uh, and it rightfully should be praised. When we look at the people who are the most successful in the world, they have tons and tons and tons of failures behind them. Um, it's the same thing in academia. You know, we have like these like people we put on pedestals who are grant funded and have all this money uh, in their name and all these great achievements. But if you sit down and talk to them, they they failed so many times before that. And anyone who has had a ton of success will tell you that. But that's not what is mainly shown. And that's what they, they don't always advertise. So we have this like false perception that people succeed all the time. Um, you know, those are the kind of messages we need to be sending folks So celebrate the successes when they uh, when they are there and make sure that you praise the effort. It's, it's not about ignoring challenges, remember? It's not about ignoring deficits, those exist. You're being real. But it's, it's, it's about also celebrating the strengths and making sure you build off of that. Think about the metaphor I introduced yesterday about, um, for instance, when you're, you're building a house, a home. If you have an existing foundation, you're not gonna ignore the foundation, right? You build upon the foundation um, instead of trying something entirely new. The shift that's really important though, it's, it goes from how can I fix someone to how can we build on existing capabilities or capacities. This is all right in uh, rhyme with the recovery approach. Um, and, and, you know, all the evidence shows if you really embrace the strength-based approach, you will have improved engagement. You will have more successes. You will challenge the stigma and the dependency. The person will start to see themselves more as a capable resource. Remember, this stuff doesn't just flip on, though, right? Because you're, you're fighting against decades and decades and decades, often even more than that sometimes, of oppression here where a person doesn't feel like they're capable of anything. So it's not just going to be a, an easy fix. Um, so what are they, right? Remember, we discovered this. They're all their interests, their music, art, sports, things that people do. Um, somebody, the last time I gave this uh, training, somebody mentioned uh, they had somebody that was really good at uh, calligraphy and art. And uh, so she started uh, uh, having that person uh, write things for, uh, for other clients and creating that like belonging, that sense of belonging for them. They were starting to, whenever they would have an event, the person would, uh, would write like signs and decorate. Um, there were, uh, so there were many other ways you can use that, that art uh, in, in someone's um, uh, uh, interventions. Uh, personal skills, of course, those are easy to think about, whether a person's social, organizational, uh, vocational, what is working, what can they do? Um, remember uh, the example I, I talked about uh, 
yesterday with the gentleman who couldn't uh, use the bathroom or was forgetting to use the bathroom and we used his interest in Clemson football to create a visual prompt that then was interesting, caught his eye and drew him to the prompt and it was a reminder for him to, to use the bathroom. Uh, so those are strengths as well. But, um, you know, like music, if someone likes music, then maybe you can rope the music in, play the music when, when uh, uh, you're, um, you're doing an intervention. Music's a little bit different uh, than a lot of other uh, uh, outside sensory things. Like you don't want if, uh, to distract a person when you're doing an intervention, but at the same time, you know, if it's a song that they're very familiar with, it's predictable. It's not really so much distracting and it can be very much of a support. <clears throat> or if somebody you know is really interested in, in music, you could use it as like a timer uh, for somebody. You know, play if they don't if they don't know how long they should be doing something. Uh, you could just have a do such and such activity as the music plays. Um, those kinds of things are are ways you can rope in a person's interests. All right. So the how, okay, is making sure that you develop a helpful relationship. That means it's very purposeful, easy to say, reciprocal. So that means that it is positive in both ways. Here we go. The children are entering. Yes, hello. Um, sorry about that. Uh, the reciprocal piece is really important because it, it can't be just a, a one-way one direction relationship, okay? Um, people want to help you as well. Uh, I remember like, uh, years ago when I was working uh, in inpatient uh, state hospital, so this is like a long time ago, uh, I injured my foot and I was on crutches. And you know, nowadays they probably wouldn't let you on the unit um, with crutches, but uh, back then, you know, uh, security was a little bit more lax. And uh, I was still running groups and uh, doing uh, individual interventions. And, and, you know, the people on the unit were literally tripping over themselves to open doors for me to help me carry uh, supplies because they they were really wanting to 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 help out just to to, to be nice and to feel needed uh and it it was just a really rich experience to see um how people value being able to help others you know so don't hesitate to ask for help yourself like can you carry that for me or something i don't know um but making things seem more like a team effort, like a collaborative effort, like we're in this together is a, is a very uh, uh, important way to develop a reciprocal relationship. Of course, it needs to be friendly, trusting, you know, and empowering. So uh, remember that the, you, when you do a strengths-based approach, you're really empowering a person. So you, it takes a lot of skill to do this, right? It, to, to involve the person as a co-facilitator, to open up more discussions uh, and to be collaborative. Um, because a lot of times, again, remember, people are not used to that. They're used to being told what to do, and it's just really hard uh, to take ownership over your own, um, your own goals and your own uh, skill learning when that's been someone else's job for most of your life. Uh, you know, when, when you really uh, are successful at having a person be a co-facilitator, they're much more able to help you uh, problem solve and find things that are meaningful to them. And once you find something that's meaningful to somebody, that's the low hanging fruit, that's when the success happens. If you rush the assessment piece, you miss a lot of that stuff and you might even find stuff that's, that's too hard to achieve. So a lot of times this is, this is, you know, you discover these things when you spend time chatting informally with somebody, including about yourself, about your own interests, to get to know the person. Remember the, uh, the assessment uh, I mentioned yesterday um, can help you guide you somewhat on, the, on the, what things to chat about. Um, but, um, you know, that, that informal chatting, uh, it shows that you're not in a rush and that you value the person for who they are. Uh, but while you're doing it, don't just do it just to build rapport, right? While you're doing it, make sure you keep that detective hat on and that you're you're, you're looking and you're being very critical, not critical in terms of like being um, uh, uh, negatively critical, but, uh, uh, it, but, but being very uh, thoughtful about what you see, critical thinking, 
uh, in terms of what kind of evidence you find for strengths, interests, talents, competencies, hobbies, whatever. You can talk about stuff that you enjoy doing, how you like to do it, what you did last weekend. Um, the more conversational and familiar uh, the, your interaction is, the better in this case. Remember, don't make it feel clinical. Um, oh, Stephanie just added a really important chat here. I hope you guys saw it, uh, that uh, when you're informing challenge, she likes to do, to find something that an individual can teach her. And uh, yeah, that, that's excellent. That's exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about right there. You're making the person, uh, you're switching the power dynamic. The person is the teacher in that, in that situation. And then they get to experience success and mastery. Um, th th those things can be very helpful. Uh, and it could be something small, right? Yeah. No, in, in fact, that's actually really important. It's, it's important to seize on those small opportunities because a lot of times you won't have the big thing. You know, a lot of times uh, someone won't necessarily be able to teach you something very sophisticated, but the little things can be very important. People are definitely their own experts. Thank you, Barbara. Uh, so, you know, enacting a strengths-based practice has to do with training yourself again to make sure that you always highlight it. You know it's important. You've heard this probably in a billion trainings by now. Uh, but make it, but you may not have been able to have developed a habit yet because remember that takes a lot of time to do. So you, you have to keep checking yourself. Remember our habits hold us back in a lot of ways. All right. So I want you guys to, to, to label some strengths. I'm going to share some in a second, but strengths that you guys have seen in your clients. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to start listing them. Uh, I've seen people, uh, of course there's like some amazing imagination that you can see, right. But, uh, art. I've seen, I've seen, uh, well, resilience, yes. And that's something to be celebrated. Remember, folks are going through very intense challenges. Some creativity, uh, the creativity is amazing because then you can really rope that in where people can help other people. If someone's good at speaking, you know, maybe they can speak to uh, their peers about a, a, a topic of interest or something they're passionate about. So you switch the dynamic again there. People are, are funny. People are, are, are uh, good at speaking. They're, uh, they're resourceful. Very good. This is, this is terrific. Um, singing. There, there's something in everybody, right? So find it. And how, can you, and how can you celebrate that? Usually there's a lot more than just one thing. Find it. Talents in music. Yeah. So the more you can create, like, it all depends. On, I, don't, I don't know exactly what, what your service uh, line looks like. But, you know, creating uh, groups or situations where one person can, uh, uh, with a certain talent, can instruct the, the rest of the group and oh. they know well. Like, for instance, if somebody uh, is really good at, um, at cooking, they could maybe lead a cooking group uh, for other folks. Uh, th those kinds of things can, uh, can really make somebody feel important. So thank you for, uh, for sharing all that. Spiritual strength. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, that can be a major, major uh, thing as well, in the sense that uh, when you go, uh, when you find that someone who is spiritual and they are connected to a church, that there's a lot that can go on there in terms of service uh, and, and that can make them, the person who is attending the church, feel like a valued member of a community, not to be underestimated, feeling part of a community. We're going to quickly go over some of the typical challenges experienced by people. Um, and this is where I'm going to review the cognition stuff and the sensory stuff, and then uh, we'll get into the, uh, the actual uh, strategies. Excuse me. All right. So we know that there's a lot of uh, uh, cognitive challenges um, in this population. 
And when I talk about cognition, this doesn't mean that people aren't smart. They're actually very smart, right? Um, some of the smartest people that have ever existed on this planet have had serious mental illness. So this has nothing to do with smartness, but what it does have to do uh, with is like ability to attend to things, um, having a working memory. So while you're performing a task, keeping some information in your head while you're working on a task uh, and the speed with which uh, people uh, process information. So cognition is extremely important for processing and learning information, thinking, remembering, reading, understanding and solving problems. And so we know that this population tends to have um, issues with cognition. So we know that cognition is intimately related to functional independence, that uh, folks uh, with SMI often have cognitive um, differences and that those are um, uh, often a piece of a part of the illness, but also can result from the treatment. Remember I mentioned a lot of medications out there can make people feel very foggy and, um, uh, and not like literally feel like sort of outside of their own body such that uh, it's difficult to focus on any anything. So the medication can be um, a barrier. But then the, the environment too, the accumulated disadvantage, you know, uh, if you're bored, you're born in an impoverished area, uh, the opportunities you have to develop skills are extremely limited. Um, so there's a lot of accumulated disadvantage. And depending on where a person had first onset of their illness, if it was, you know, early or after college, there's a lot of skill building that occurs between those years. So um, the accumulated disadvantage um, is, is, is a significant issue as well. Remember uh, the study I mentioned yesterday, the number one predictor of your health is your zip code, which is wrong. Uh, not the wrong fact, but it just shouldn't be that way. Uh, and, there's, and there's also a, uh, a lot of comorbid illnesses that can actually affect a person's cognition here. Uh, we're talking about anything that uh, folks can have that can make you feel tired. If you feel tired, everything seems more difficult. In fact, your self-efficacy goes low. There are studies out there, and I know you've experienced this. If you're used to going up a hill all the time, but you go to that hill this one day and you're, you're feeling really tired and you're really down on yourself, that hill literally looks steeper and harder to, to, to go over than it does when you're feeling good of yourself. And, that, and there's research to prove that, and uh, it has to do with all, all challenges you have. And it, it's so intuitive, right? When you're exhausted, you're not feeling well, um, you're just much, much, much less able to overcome things. Uh, so any, any kind of uh, uh, health issues people have that affect their, um, their energy level can affect their cognition in some ways. We also know that it's affected by sleep and exercise. How many of your folks are getting good sleep? Probably zero. How many of your folks are getting regular ex exercise? Probably not a lot. Um, there's evidence that shows, for sure, if you exercise, it improves your cognition, it also makes you sleep better. These things are all roped in together. So if you're not exercising, you're not uh, 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 sleeping well, and you have uh, medication issues, and you have this history of accumulated disadvantage, your cognition can be significantly affected. What we do know, though, which is really positive, is that it can be developed through training and that uh, when we develop uh, strong cognitive skills, it can make learning easier. And uh, so that means you don't give up on it. You keep training, folks. That's why uh, research shows also that engaging in cognitive activities as you go older is preventative of things like dementia and Parkinson's. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of encouragement out there to make sure you're doing pseudo puzzles and crossword puzzles. Basically, just engaging your mind is what is what it's all about. All right. Okay. Sensory differences. We're going to focus on, um, I'm going to bring this up to you guys really quick and then introduce that, uh, 
that um, assessment I mentioned. But these are the two main auditory ones I mentioned to you yesterday. So uh, the P50 brain uh, brainwave, remember that terrible drawing I gave you? Um, and it's just to remind you that uh, the P50 is that one wave that goes up. We get an 80-90% reduction, but for folks with SMI, it only reduces a tiny bit. So every time they hear the noise, it's like it's the, almost like it's the first time. What that means is you don't get used to uh, a repetitive auditory stimulus. And so uh, it's really hard to filter out extraneous information. What does that mean in, uh, in practice? That means when you go to a busy, uh, a, a very loud environment with lots of different no uh, noises going on, that that can be very overwhelming to somebody. Think about going to the state fair, think about going to a concert, any sporting event, a lot of the stuff that we like to do, going out to dinner, going out to a bar, whatever, a coffee shop, there's a lot going on there and it can be very overwhelming to folks. So if you have all this auditory stimulus coming to you and you're unable to sort really through it, it's distracting, uh, it's overwhelming. What it does is it makes you unable to focus on the person right in front of you that you're interacting with. And that can be very difficult. In terms of supported employment, just think about where we're putting uh, most of uh, our, our clients or uh, the jobs that we're setting up most folks with. They tend to be in really noisy environments as well. Um, and so maybe we're setting people up uh, uh, for failure in some ways, or maybe we're just not giving the adaptations that folks need to be able to deal with those sensory environments. So if you think about it, like someone who's having a really hard time filtering out uh, sensory information, like auditory information, what do you do? Well, there are a couple things you could do. You could either put on headphones to filter everything out altogether, but someone may not want that, right? Because it may look weird uh, for other folks. Everyone feels different. Another thing you can do is put on some, uh, some music. And so right there, again, remember, some, some, it would be uh, a song that tunes out everything else. So you're getting at least a predictable auditory input there that can help you focus. Now I'm starting to realize maybe why I like uh, listening to music so much. Uh, when, I, when I work, it's because it allows me to filter everything else out. And all I'm listening to is the music, and that's predictable. So when something random comes, my P50 wave doesn't shoot up. Uh, I'm, never, I'm never getting that wave. It's always the, the, the lower one because I'm listening to a song that I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar with, and my brain can predict it. Okay. Uh, mismatch negativity, remember, that's the one where you can't tell a difference in, uh, in tone. Uh, so you have, like, a steady um, stimulus, and then it changes. A uh, person with a serious mental illness may miss that change. What that means is you uh, you can miss uh, people's you can misread people's emotions and miss sarcasm. Um, so be uh, be aware of those differences right there. I won't revisit the uh, predictive one because uh, that one's a little complicated. These are the visual ones that I mentioned yesterday that we didn't uh, necessarily get into, but there's uh, uh, evidence that uh, folks with depression, especially, uh, have literally a, dip, a dimmer uh, uh, perception of the world. Um, generally, most folks with serious mental illness have difficulty with contrast, and that's like seeing uh, like uh, uh, different colors contrasting well. Um, they, uh, there's also a tendency to have difficulty tracking slow-moving objects. So when, like, say you're trying to track my finger right here across the screen, uh, typical folks usually can just follow the finger, no problem, right? Uh, but folks with serious mental illness, basically what will happen is, so if this is their eye and this is moving, they'll lag behind and they'll catch up and they'll lag behind and they'll catch up. So that's what it means, it's okay. So it's not a smooth pursuit. Their eyes actually going like more like this, okay? So, you know, you gotta wonder, is that actual a sensory issue or is that because the person is dealing with other stimulus that's affecting their ability to focus on this moving thing? And so there's their tracking, loss of focus, tracking, loss of focus. We don't know. What we do know is that, that there's, there's this issue going on. Um, there's also uh, research out there that shows that um, 
that a person uh, has a harder time focusing on a single object. So if I hold up a target like this and tell you to look at it for a certain amount of time, uh, fo typical folks will be able to focus on this for longer. Uh, folks with serious mental illness will uh, tend to uh, go all over the place a little bit more. Um, there's also, uh, similar to this, a couple bullet points down. Um, <clears throat> if you have like a, present a picture to someone with serious mental illness as opposed to not, uh, there is a different way of scanning the face um, and then, or any image than uh, most typical individuals uh, have. This stuff has really come out in autism research as well. Um, and they've, they've really shown that folks with autism also uh, have uh, atypical scanning um, and they tend to focus on different parts of a person's face uh, than uh, other folks do. Um, I don't think they've made that conclusion with schizophrenia yet, but they're, uh, they're getting there. Um, and what's interesting is I think historically, uh, autism when it was first coming out and people were realizing it, they were calling it childhood schizophrenia. Um, so in depression, there's an, a bias towards negative visual stimuli. Uh, and what that means is that uh, any two people come into the room, the person with depression is gonna pick out the, the stuff or not like intentionally do it, but that's what's going on in the, in the brain is like they're, they're, they're uh, unintentionally focusing in on all the negative aspects of that environment more so than the person who doesn't have depression. Okay, those are just some of the visual things. There's a lot going on. Um, Stephanie mentions that this can impact social interaction big time. Totally, right? And that you put that plus the auditory stuff, uh, plus then the, all of the uh, lovely stigma our uh, society has, um, that's really um, a perfect storm for somebody to not feel included and to be marginalized. This stuff really fires me up in case you haven't noticed. All right, so this is the, uh, the, uh, the new slide that I inserted for you guys. Again, I, I don't get a dime if you guys uh, buy this stuff. It's not mine um, and I'll be the first to critique it. You know, it's not my favorite assessment, but there aren't many. So where this assessment would be good for you all is it does provide some item uh, item things. I think you can see my mouse. Stephanie, can they see my mouse? Okay. Um, so the sections, you know, you have like taste and smell processing and uh, it's asking questions that are pretty specific and you can get to know who you're working with uh, in some ways. Like I don't smell things that other people say they smell or uh, I only eat familiar foods, which shows, you know, that you're, you're actually having an aversion to experiencing different tastes. Um, like in auditory processing, you know, maybe I hum and whistle or make other noises. A lot of people who do that are creating their own input so that they can control uh, outside input. Or I'm easily, uh, uh, sorry, I startle easily unexpected loud noises. I have trouble following what people are saying. Um, I leave the room when others are watching TV or ask them to turn down, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can see how these little items right here can actually be very helpful for anyone uh, on an item by item level to get to know your clients and to also uh, then make good decisions. Like for instance, if you're trying to do supported employment, putting somebody uh, again in a, uh, a really busy auditory environment, if they're saying that almost always they're trying to stay away from noisy settings, that they uh, don't notice when their name is called and that they have trouble following what people are saying, if they're saying all these things almost always and you put them in one of those environments, you're going to fail, right? Both of you are going to fail and your relationship's going to fail. So don't do that. Um, what this does is like it's, it, it helps you uh, get those item by item understandings of, of, of a person. And so here's a, just a, a summary of what it's like. There are 60 items and it's broken up into these six different categories, taste, smell, movement, um, visual touch and activity level and auditory processing. The activity level and the movement stuff, it's really capturing uh, what we call proprioception and a vestibular uh, um, 
sensory input. And those are like the two sensory systems that no one talks about. You know, you're taught there's only five. Well, that's not right. There's actually more. And it's actually more than seven. It's actually a lot more than that. Because uh, now we know that so there's vestibular proprioception. Now we know there's interoception. There's all these pain receptors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's not five. But that's what we're taught. You can trace this all back to a French philosopher, by the way. His name is Descartes. He ruined it for us all. Um, so that's my, that's my nerdiness coming out. I'm sorry. Uh, so you score people on 60 items on all these, 10 items uh, in general per, um, per section. And what it does is as you're scoring, you say either much less. I'm sorry. It was always, most always, as you saw in the, this one right here, you almost never, seldom occasionally. But then the person is scored on these quadrants right here, whether they're low registration, sensation seeking, whether they're sensory sensitivity or sensation avoiding, and then it's scored much less than people, uh, less than most, similar to most, more than most, much more than most. And so these, this is where I don't think it's quite as useful for uh, you guys as clinicians. Um, in OT, we use it quite a bit. Um, but again, you know, I think the uh, for your purposes, the item by item stuff is much more interesting. So uh, I think uh, you have all the information you need to go seek it. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna advertise it anymore. I think it's like 150 bucks or something like that. Okay, another thing to always consider while you're doing interventions is the issue with dual tasking, all right? Don't underestimate the importance here. Dual tasking is really hard. Actually, the science is saying that we, we actually can't dual task. We think we dual task, but what we're really doing is just switching, 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 switching. We're never doing two things really at once. We're just getting really good at switching back and forth our attention so fast that we don't think uh, we're actually switching and that we really think we're doing two things at once, but the neuroscience is saying that we're not now. So really dual tasking is about the ability to be able to switch back and forth really fast between different tasks cognitively. It's really hard. Um, we're getting better at it with our phones, uh, but we're still pretty bad at it. And uh, the science shows that when you do two things at once, you're not as effective as when you do one thing at once. It makes a lot of sense, right? So one thing we always forget about as therapists and as interventionists is that speaking and listening is a task. And so when you're, you're trying to give somebody help or you're, uh, you're working on a living skill, you know, we have this tendency to want to talk uh, because we hate silence. In this country, this culture, silence is awful, right? Uh, when you ask a, a question, so this is also based on research, by the way, anthrop anthropological research. Uh, when you ask a, a question in the United States, uh, the expectation is that the answer is provided immediately. We prize speed and quick responses because we think that that's a demonstration of a person's intelligence and that they're really paying attention. In Japan, on the other hand, you are actually supposed to wait. And if you respond too quickly, that's seen as uh, not giving enough consideration to the question. It's socially taboo in the sense that you, you seem rash. So you, uh, um, there's like a silence that's expected there. So that, it's interesting because that translates so differently. When I, when I train my students to, 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 to be academics and teachers, uh, as a, uh, someone giving a training or a teacher, when you ask a question and then there's silence after it, it is deafening silence. It, it feels like it lasts forever. And people always want to fill that void with something. But what really happens is that people are thinking about what you said and they're trying to give the answer, but you, you're, you feel that as an extremely long void. So what, this, what I'm really trying to say for you all as interventionists is that when, you, when you're trying to work on a living skill with somebody, just be really mindful of all the stuff you say. Don't give too many prompts. Or maybe when someone's working on a difficult task, now's not the time to work on um, uh, uh, building rapport, right? Uh, you may want to like talk about something you did last weekend while someone's doing else. You, you really 
possibly setting them up for disaster there. Rapport building is very important. Sharing stuff about yourself is very important. Just do so intelligently uh, or strategically and try not to uh, um, uh, subvert your own attempts at uh, doing a, a living skills intervention. So that, you know, think about uh, uh, taking the t turning the TV off, uh, perhaps when someone's trying to work on an activity. Uh, and then also consider how many of the community activities you, uh, you and your folks do that involve dual tasking. A lot of them do. Uh, you're, you're trying to talk to somebody as you go up to purchase something or you're interacting socially um, while, um, uh, you know, managing your money. Uh, a lot of errors can happen there. So to drive this point home for you guys, I am going to engage you in a short dual tasking activity. Okay. We'll see if this works. So what I, I'm going to present you with five letters. Okay. And you are going to try to create as many word combinations using those uh, using those letters. You can use you know only two of the letters, three letters, four letters, or five, all five. So different combinations of those five letters. While you're doing that, I'm going to have you listen to Roxanne from the Police. Okay, and you're going to have to count how many times they say Roxanne while you're doing this activity at once. All right. So get a pen and paper ready, because I'm about to give you those those letters. And then I'm going to start the song really quick because people are fast and they'll start going and writing those letters and they're going to cheat. <laughs> You're not cheaters, but you know, I know how it goes. So here it is. T E O R H. Okay. T E O R H. Terrific. Okay.
But allegedly, uh, the, Roxanne was repeated 27 times. So yeah, 31 possibilities for T-E-O-R-H and 27 uh, times uh, that Roxanne was repeated. Sorry to put you through that. Um, you may be a police fan. Eh, you know, <laughs> everyone's got different tastes. But they, uh, I chose the song, though, because, um, you know, doing these two things at once is, is actually really difficult, right? Um, and, and just imagine uh, when you throw on uh, uh, activities that you have no idea what you're doing, um, and you may be, you know, who knows what kind of cognitive challenges you're dealing with and other additional auditory stimuli that you're dealing with. Counting the times someone says Roxanne is super simple. Coming up with different combinations of the word, pretty simple. You put the two together and you put a time limit on it, it becomes extremely difficult. Okay, so uh, thank you for humoring me on trying that activity. But I think the, the point is just to really drive home how difficult it is to do this stuff. When I do these trainings in person, what I usually have do, uh, people do is um, uh, text something. Uh, while uh, they're walking and timing the the uh, the time it takes the person to walk back and forth. So we do it without texting and then we do it with texting. And even with how amazing people are with dual tasking with texting now, they were still walking much slower. And, uh, you know, these are folks that are doing really well right now that are either in recovery or whatever, you know, but that are not dealing with significant challenges necessarily in the moments. And so can you imagine how much more difficult it gets? So. All right. And so people are putting uh, how many uh, words they got. Awesome. You know, I didn't even do the activity myself because I'm afraid to see how bad I would be. So thank you for, it's kind of mean for me to do this for you guys. All right. Uh, so how you present information. Uh, this is, you know, what we've been talking about right here, sensory stuff, cognitive issues, uh, uh, dual tasking issues, how you present information is critical. Uh, so a lot of times you need to think about whether you're doing it verbally, through written, or through demonstration or other mediums. The truth is that you really need to be doing it through uh, multiple mediums uh, for folks because we all have very different learning styles. And I'm going to show you another video here uh, that does learning styles. Here's Jonathan studying for a test. And studying, and studying, and studying. And here he is getting his test results. All that studying, and he still got an F. Why? The thing is, there's no one right way to study. Some methods might work great for one person and not at all for others. Everybody learns differently. In order to find a study method that's best for you, it's important to know your learning style. The four most popular learning styles are visual, auditory, reading-writing, and kinesthetic, or hands-on. For most people, one of these methods will work best, but it's also possible for a combination of different styles to be effective. To discover your learning style, you can complete an online assessment. There's a wide variety of them available, consisting of multiple choice questions. However, you can also observe yourself and your previous learning experiences to get an idea of how you learn best. Let's circle back to Jonathan. When he's in class and his teacher is lecturing, he gets distracted pretty easily. Words tend to go in one ear and out the other. But when his teacher starts using visuals, Jonathan finds it easier to focus and understand the material. So he might be a visual learner. Now think about your history. How have you enjoyed learning in the past? Do you prefer watching over listening? Do you enjoy reading instead? Or maybe you learn best by doing, with hands-on experience. If none of these seem to grab you, give them each a try and see which one you tend to drift towards. Each learning style has its own study methods that work best with it. Let's take a look at how Jonathan and a few of his classmates study. 
As a visual learner, Jonathan finds it helpful to color code his notes. He finds it helps him to organize information and internalize it better. He also creates diagrams while studying, finding that they help him to better understand certain structures and ideas. Jonathan watches videos too, finding them helpful for extra information. Ruby is more of an auditory learner. She likes to study in a group and discuss the material with others. Sometimes she'll read her notes out loud because it helps her to hear what she's studying. In some classes, Ruby will record the lecture, with her teacher's permission, of course, so that she can go back and listen to it later. Terrell finds that he learns best by reading and writing. He takes substantial notes during class and reads over them often. When he's trying to memorize something, he'll often write it out. He also makes sure to read and reread any materials his teacher has assigned the class. Raya is a kinesthetic learner. She's got a lot of energy and likes doing things. Labs and hands-on activities help her to understand certain ideas and topics. Sometimes she'll review her material while she's walking around. She also likes to take breaks in order to release some of her energy, allowing her to focus when she returns to studying. All four of these students are studying the same material, but they're doing so in different ways. Now, this doesn't guarantee that they'll all get the same grades, but by determining their learning style and finding study methods that work for them, they just might find themselves getting better results. All right. So yeah, you know, the truth is that a lot of us benefit from uh, more than one learning style. And I hope you paid a special uh, attention to the visual learning piece. Because uh, remember, like everything we've heard right now, there is likely to be an auditory issue or at least um, uh, uh, challenges in processing auditory information. And if you saw the visual person, the visual learner, uh, that there was a lot of color coding, there was organizing information, and there was using diagrams. So keep that in your mind because that's a very useful strategy. Um, you know, for any person, if you think about it, um, in terms of like the permanence of a, stim a sensory stimulus, when I say something, it's immediately gone. That's why I need to repeat it over and over and over again, because uh, the auditory stimulus, it, it's like instantaneously gone, right? So uh, when you're giving person information, if they're missing something, then they, a lot of times a person will be like, oh, I missed something. And then information keeps coming in and they've already started missing everything else that keeps coming in. Whereas if it's visual, if it's written, uh, a person can start reading. Oops, I, I kind of missed that. I can need to go back. The information is still there. So visual information in its permanence is much easier to process than uh, auditory information, which is like totally fleeting and um, difficult to, to hold on to. Then there's like all these theories about the fact that the, uh, the visual system is like directly connected, connected, I'm sorry, to the brain in a different way than the auditory is and uh, that it's like has a more direct pathway. Um, you know, long story short is it's the uh, auditory can be more difficult to process, even if you don't have auditory issues. In fact, you guys have probably received this uh, training at some point in your lives. But if you ever do any like uh, nonviolent um, uh, uh, like intervention where you're trying to uh, calm someone down, uh, they at least if they the folks focus enough on the, uh, the uh, de-escalation processes, it's all about simplifying language, using less language and even uh, if possible, using uh, uh, visual stuff like when someone is super distressed and super anxious. We have this tendency to want to like jump around the person and flood them with these instructions on how to calm themselves down, but we're really flooding them with more stimuli that's overwhelming. And if a person's anxious, like all that stuff can just lead to a blow up. Whereas what a person really needs in that moment is 
peace and quiet, and then maybe some visual prompts on how to calm themselves. Keep that in mind for yourself as well when you're feeling amped and, uh, and really uh, tense in moments that uh, this is something you experience too. The auditory information is just harder for you to filter through. And because you're already anxious, your sensory system is on hyper alert because that's an evolutionary thing. So it's like you're even more aware of what's coming in to begin with, let alone being overwhelmed by it. It's like this perfect storm again. So um, just be very careful with the auditory stuff, including when you're trying to build rapport and including when you don't think someone has a sensory issue. You never know. You never know. Uh, here's just a nod to the fact that uh, most people have uh, multidimensional learning pr uh, preferences. You know, the kinesthetic piece, I haven't talked enough about that yet, um, but that is uh, also a major way of learning. Um, do you remember how uh, I was mentioning yesterday how your brain uh, tends to encode information, uh, sensory motor information, and then we have like these predictions that we have sensory motor predictions as we do in activities. So when I reached for my coffee cup, my brain was already telling me what to expect, and that was a sensory motor prediction. That helps me successfully do this and modulate my, uh, my, uh, my, the action of taking it so I know how to do it. If I don't have that sensory motor information to rely on, I won't even know how to grab it. So that really speaks to the idea that we are kinesthetic learners. We learn with our bodies. Observation is another way, though. We also have these things called mirror neurons. And what mirror neurons do is they activate sensory motor processes in our brains when we see somebody do something. It's literally monkey see, monkey do. Like you, you, you see somebody doing something and you're getting these neural processes in your mind that, that, that are exactly mimicking it. It's not as good as you doing it yourself, but it's happening in here. And so um, that's another teaching tool. That you, that you do demonstrations. Don't rely just on explanation. I can't tell you how many times in the state hospital I would walk by the treatment mall, um, which I don't know if you're familiar with that model, but basically people would go to classes throughout the day in the state hospital uh, and they would engage like four groups a day uh, and it was called the treatment mall. It was a really cool concept, but what it evolved often to a classroom with a healthcare professional writing stuff up on the board and lecturing a, a group of uh, asleep individuals. Uh, because it, it didn't involve anybody. It was primarily auditory, even though they, at least they wrote some things up. Uh, but the people weren't actually involved in doing. Their bodies weren't called forward, and it was just boring. So the, uh, it was like it's a psychoeducational model. It's just not, it's not very effective. You need to educate, for sure. You need to explain things, for sure. If you stop there, you'll have zero success. You need to go on. We're going to review some of those strategies here. So in terms of general communication, putting this all together, Making sure uh, when you start anything that you have your clients focus and attention because, you know, that is not something to be taken uh, for granted. Sometimes someone is not there uh, to, to focus on an activity. If a person's not ready to, for an intervention, you're just not going to have any success. You need the person to be vested in it. So are they ready in that moment? Um, I, I used to walk in a lot in folks' room uh, houses and they would have like the TV blaring. You know, um, ask politely, of course, if you can turn the TV television off because the television is a major distractor there and it's an unpredictable distractor. Uh, I would, you know, if it's a movie that the person's seen a million times, then maybe not. But uh, usually that's not the case. It's, it's, it's a major distractor. I would typically also ask folks to turn off the music, too. Uh, but I'm not as bothered by the music because it's a little bit more predictable. Uh, so, you know, one way to get the focus and attention is to make sure you provide an intervention outline. You don't have to, like, be super formal about this. In fact, I, 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 I think I'd rather you not because you don't want to make it clinical. But, like, at least let someone know what's going to happen. Uh, what are you guys going to work on today? What are you going to do? You know, uh, that's, that's really important so that somebody knows what to expect, uh, how much time it's going to take, that kind of a thing. 
so providing that general orientation is important, but don't make it feel clinical, right? And then pace yourself, which I'm probably not doing well here, uh, but uh, make sure you check for understanding and uh, that you allow for processing, processing time. Remember, we're one of our habits, one of our sociocultural habits in the West, so French and United States, right, is that we want to fill those silences with, uh, those, uh, with words and we want to talk, 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 talk. Check yourself on that. Give the person time to process things. Remember that there's sensory issues, potentially sensory issues there, potentially cognitive issues there, and that you need the person to have time to understand what you have said before you move on. If you give too much at once, it, it, people are going to miss things. So that's, you know, you need to give the space and you need to be patient. Think about how you can structure the information and the conversation in a way that is really like laser focused. So think about it as like you have rapport building time, you know, when you're really uh, sharing stuff about yourself and you're trying to get to know the person and then you have skill building time and that's the intervention time. And the skill building time, then you, be, you need to be laser focused and kind of give up on the rapport piece, you know. Uh, the rapport building that happens during the intervention is you setting the intervention up for the person to be successful and then they want to be with you in those moments. That's the rapport building. Don't use your conversations in those moments because that's when you're like, you're distracting the person, you're interfering with it. Um, again, you know, these are tendencies. Some people may be okay with doing that. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, uh, those types of interventions are, are barriers to success, right? So do your rapport building, then be laser focused on your intervention and, and then don't diverge. Don't distract the person. Don't put just, you know, barriers of uh, sensory stimuli into their, uh, into their environment. Uh, so when you give instructions, um, and I, I'm terrible about this too, because my brain's all over the place. When you give instructions, try to make it like sequential uh, instead of like, you know, jumping between different uh, uh, steps. If it's a good idea to like, think about what you're going to say before you go. Like, so if you drive up to someone's place or you're like, you see somebody on the street that you're about to go uh, work with, you know, just, pause for one second and get your stuff together and like think, okay, how are we going to do this? What, are, what is this going to look like? How am I going to explain this? And that'll help you be more sequential. You know, you may even want to write it down. Um, you know, maybe not take out the piece of paper when you're doing it, but uh, yeah, writing it down and just having that in your brain would be very helpful. Another thing not to underestimate is using just simple first then language. It's like first this, then this happens. Breaking things down that concretely and that sequentially for folks can be very helpful. So don't underestimate the importance of that. I'm going to revisit this issue in a minute when we're talking about forming habits, new habits. Of course, use uh, simple and concrete language. So uh, when I say that, it's like, you know, don't be pedantic either. Just uh, but don't make things overly complicated. Don't use tons of metaphors and abstract concepts because those can be interpreted in so many different ways. They have different meanings depending on where you are from in the world. It's a it's a challenge. So try to avoid those as much as possible. Um, some of us, you know, only communicate through these kinds of things. So if you're a person that does a lot of metaphors and a lot of abstract uh, uh, um, talking, just try to check yourself there, too, and make it as concrete as possible. And, of course, as I keep mentioning, don't forget the sensory needs. Make sure you, uh, you eliminate distracting stimuli. So if a person wants to meet in public, you know, uh, that's okay, of course, if that's what they want. But try to make it a place where that's not too overwhelming in terms of uh, sensory input. All right. In terms of doing visual stuff, if you are actually creating structure or uh, prompts, you know, use pretty large print. Uh, you never know uh, what kind of uh, visual issue a person is dealing with. The person may not even know that they have a visual issue because it's never been diagnosed. 
the larger the print, you know, the more clear it is. Of course, you know, be reasonable, right? You don't want like the big banners coming in. Uh, but make sure you use high contrast and, and, and good contrast. Think about the uh, the example I gave you yesterday where you had that text box that was in red with the green writing over it. And uh, that like that contrast was a nightmare. Uh, I, I can't even read it and make it out myself. And I wrote it. So, you know, just be very aware of those kinds of things, because sometimes, you know, you want to make something look good if you're going to put something up in someone's room or you uh, you're trying to make it client centered. So you're trying to use maybe uh, colors of a team or a band or something like that. Be aware of how that could uh, also be a barrier if it's uh, not presenting the information very clearly and um, in, in an organized fashion. So just don't just like litter the paper with with a visual structure. In other words, try to be organized in it so that, you know, that includes uh, using short sentences that don't have a bunch of unnecessary info. Uh, we're going to go through, uh, I think I mentioned this yesterday, we're going to analyze a bunch of, uh, of uh, food packaging to look at the instructions and we're going to use this information so you can see how, how it looks because some of them are awful and others are better. Um, so make sure that the information itself is clearly separated, instructions versus whatever, uh, and that uh, you're using numbers to sequence information because at least in this, you know, in this culture, we're, we're very uh, ordinal in those, uh, in the, numerically <laughs> uh, in, in, with numbers. Uh, pictures are very helpful. Remember what they, uh, the, that um, video just said a couple moments ago on how you can use pictures to illustrate like literally a paragraph of words can be summed up in a picture. That needs to be done effectively though. I'm going to show you an example of CDC guidelines for COVID-19 that try to use pictures in a way, but it, it's actually like not informative. So the picture might as well be there. And then of course, make sure that everything is, is, is clearly labeled. Now I say all this, but keep it, I, I, this slide is really important here. Keep it age appropriate. Make sure you respect who you're working with, right? Do not do baby talk. Simple and concrete language is simple and concrete language. It's not the same thing as baby talk. So make sure you check your tone. I have seen this happen so many times in inpatient and in the community where someone who means very well goes up to somebody and literally has that, you know, kind of voice. I know you've heard it. Uh, the person who's receiving that, that, that tone, that baby talk is not liking it okay because it's it's really uh it's really uh insulting i see somebody is laughing because i know uh gladys you probably have uh experienced this and seen it somewhere it's it's rampant it's hard for us to, to, to check that so just make sure that you're not confusing simple and concrete without abstract uh, uh language don't confuse that with baby talk all right thank you moving forward now this is a big ot concept the just right challenge and if you're able to do this with your clients, you will have success. The just right challenge is hard to find uh, and it takes a lot of uh, trial and error. But uh, what is it? It's, it's, it's literally the optimal fit for learning. So it's where the demands of doing something uh, uh, fit perfectly with the, the person's capacities in a certain context. So the person is, it's like the demands of doing are just above what a person can do. So they're, they, they're, it's a challenge and then they're able to achieve it. That's the just right challenge. I'm gonna show you some uh, visuals here in a second to illustrate it better. Um, why would we do this? Because it's super uh, uh, successful and, uh, and getting people to feel success and, and feel mastery. And then they, they experience that, that good feeling and they wanna repeat it. So it's, it helps rapport building and it helps build self-efficacy. Um, and it certainly improves functional outcomes and improves your rapport. So take a look at these images right here. I think this really uh, does it right. Let's start down here. I think this one's more simple. So if the, the, the task is like way too difficult uh, versus uh, very easy. You know, I mean, I'm sorry, very too difficult and a person has low skill. 
that's way too hard. So let's, let's use the example of uh, budgeting. Okay. Uh, you want to work on budgeting with somebody or some kind of money, money management. I'm sorry. And this person has zero money management skills. Well, if they're only able to count and you start trying to work on a budget, that's way too difficult. So you're going to lead to failure. Uh, if a person has a lot of skills and you just, you know, you create a challenge that's just above their skill level, that's the sweet spot right there. So they're learning, they're challenged, and they can succeed. The flip side of this is if it's like the person's got really high skills, so if they're able to budget and then uh, you present them a accounting task, that is insulting and uh, can ruin your report. And the person is just not going to learn anything anyway, so it's just not worthwhile. These are extreme examples right here. Um, finding this really perfect fit here is difficult. So think about it, you know, in terms of like too hot, just right, too cold. Um, this is more of a, uh, um, this is a research-based uh, uh, diagram right here that really shows the, how your level of stress actually um, is affected by uh, the, the challenge, basically. So the, the, if things are too difficult that you start experiencing fatigue, exhaustion, uh, burnout, and distress, uh, but if it's too easy, you're bored and nothing's happening here. You really want to get it in this sweet spot right here. So, you know, it's hard to find, as I said. So that's why uh, you really need to engage in trial and error. And it's a moving target because we're not all in the same space from day to day, right? Uh, our capacities change from day to day, uh, even from within the day. Remember how I was talking about how sometimes, you know, you have a, you're a morning person, you're an afternoon person, or you don't do well after lunch. Um, that, uh, that that affects your just right challenge. So the just right challenge for somebody could be different in the morning than it is in the afternoon than it is in the evening. So just make sure that you're, you're sensitive to the fact that you have to maybe change the level of challenges you do it. Uh, and don't be too hard on yourself because it is that moving target. All right, as promised, we're gonna really get into uh, the nitty gritty interventions targeting the person, environment, and occupation now. Now, when we're talking about readiness, is a person ready to, to, to take on a new living skill? Historically, we have really thought of things as building up, 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 in the sense that, you know, uh, we're gonna start here and we're gonna do skills here. A person can't live uh, alone because they're not ready yet. A person can't have a job yet because they're not ready yet. We need to do all these things like transitional housing. We need to, all these pre-vocational skills and then we'll get to the meaningful activity in the end. Um, thankfully, we have jettisoned that idea. It's still mainstream, but uh, the, uh, the the, the movement that is, is being um, uh, that everyone's being trained in now is, is, is housing first, employment first, and I'm going to say participation first as well. So basically, don't wait until the person is ready. They're ready right now. You just need to make sure that the target is, is appropriate, right? So don't wait for a person to be completely stable before you work on social participation. Just work on a type of social participation that works for the person in that moment, and then you keep building up on that. Uh, but remember that the participation itself is a stabilizing factor, so you don't want to give up on that target. It's, it's hugely important. Also, consistency is key. When you're working with a person and you're trying to change a person, remember it's the most difficult, because you're often trying to change habits, you need to be ultra, ultra consistent, okay? Because habits, remember, they're formed over uh, repetition. Uh, 66, I think I said, was the average of a ha uh, 66 reps in the same context as the average uh, for, um, for a habit to form. 
that's a lot of reps in the same context. So you want that context to be the same. So how do you do that? You make sure that each one of your visits builds upon each other, that you're aware where you're stopping and where you continue forward. If you're doing a team-based intervention, that you guys have clear communication between the team on what's happening, what you're working on, how does it look? Don't assume that because you're working on laundry that the, your team member knows exactly what the laundry is like because you may be uh, you know, uh, separating colors and whites and the other person may not be. And if you are inserting those ambiguities into the task, it can get very, very complicated. So uh, making sure that uh, you are consistent with your team members and that you are consistent with yourself uh, and that you follow up and that things procedurally build on each other, then uh, that can be really meaningful to, uh, to get a person um, uh, involved. I think about uh, when I think about the consistency piece. So my wife is an OT as well. She works in the school system and she um, uh, she had this awesome intervention with this kid. They, were, they worked on they, this child needed a lot of help with a lot of stuff. OK, but they started working on uh, he loved jokes and he, he he's a funny guy, Jake in the joke book. Um, and so basically what happened is they developed a joke book over his entire career uh, in school. And it actually went with him to uh, middle school and beyond where they used him writing the joke book in each one of the interventions to develop his school, his academic skills. Like that is, that's what I'm talking about in terms of a strength-based activity that builds from one session to the next where other providers are aware of how it goes. Because he was looking forward to each session because he loved the joke book. It was awesome and it was also skill building and it made him feel important. And then get this, this is the best part of the story. Uh, his book, and I, I'm not making this up, okay? This book was sold in an auction and somebody bought it for $40,000 and it was a donation to the children's hospital. So then he was able to say, because of the work I did, I led to this huge contribution. You know, that, that's like the best case scenario. You can't expect that to happen. But the real lesson is, is that it was a consistent thing that was building, it was meaningful, and it was used to address a bunch of other life skills. A good example is like cooking. I know I talk a lot about cooking. You can work on almost any skill, living skill, if you, if you go through cooking. You can work on money management, you can work on budgeting, you can work on the social skills, you can work on um, all sorts of things, organization, whatever, uh, through cooking activities. So when I was in the state hospital, I would have like these cooking groups and we would look on we would work on every single skill that you could imagine in those cooking groups and the culmination would be like a trip to go to a park where we would all uh, cook together and fish together. I do miss those, those days. All right. So important principles of uh, living skills training. Pay attention to this slide. This one's important. If you're going to do uh, 10%, this is one of the, this should be one of your 1% of paying attention. Uh, so of course you want to do the education piece, discussion, explanation, orienting the person to the task, being mindful of a person's communication needs. That's very important. All too often, we just stop right here. But no, education is not enough. You got to practice. The, you have to learn by doing. So practice, 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 practice. Make sure you're, you're observing the person. You're, you're not uh, just relying on self-report and just talking, that you're actually doing things together. Ways that you can have a person learn by doing is you can, if the person's okay with it, you can video them while they're doing something and then you can sit down and watch it together. And then, um, you know, talk about the performance and maybe try to figure out where things broke down or where interventions can happen. Uh, of course, you would need to de delete your video, you know, to, to, to protect confidentiality and, and so on after. But uh, if the person is not comfortable with that, another strategy, you can also just look up at like the billion YouTube uh, videos that are out there. Um, you know, some are better than others, of course, but that you, you can use that for you two to talk about, to look at, to just problem solve. What, what should it look like? Don't forget that you're always in assessment during these things. Now, 
one thing that you need to do to keep making sure that you have that just right challenge is that you need to grade activities. Okay. And when I say grading activities, I'm not talking about putting like an A, B, C, D, whatever. It's not a grade. It's just another way of saying like you adjust the activity to match the, the skill level of the, of the person who is doing it. So, you know, you got to really pay attention to where the challenges are. And you got to make sure that you're, you're aware that the person uh, is likely to have a bunch of challenges. So you don't want them to experience the failure over failure. So you don't want to work on every single challenge a person might have in relation to an occupation or activity. You work on one thing at a time and then you make sure that you keep the rest of the stuff happening smoothly. You might even do it for the person themselves. That's, that's like what I'm talking about, about grading the activity. Instead of just saying, we're going to do everything at once. We're going to work on all these, these problems you have with laundry. You know, you don't, you don't know uh, where the, it is. You don't know where to put the stuff. You don't know how to operate the machine. You don't know how to put the detergent in. We're going to do it all at once. No, 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 Don't do that. Focus on one thing at a time. That's grading the activity. And then you can do this. Okay. Of course, doing the multimodal approach, we, we, uh, we discussed that earlier, making sure that you're using different ways of learning and, and teaching making sure you provide visual instructions. You yourself be a model. You might even video demonstrate yourself uh, coaching during it. But remember, be careful with the auditory piece. So the coaching that you provide while somebody's doing the activity needs to be only on the activity and needs to be simple, concrete stuff. Don't fill the void with all your, uh, your, your anxieties about social uh, participation and you know distract the person. Um, let's see. And then, uh, oh yeah, hand over hand. Now, so this is something that we do much more in, uh, in, uh, uh, with folks with physical um, issues and you have to be very comfortable with somebody there. But what, what hand over hand is really talking about is if somebody literally has trouble grabbing uh, a spoon or something like that to eat, that you actually put your hand on theirs and do the movement with them so that they get the sensory motor input, again, the firing in their brain so they can feel what it feels like. This is really helpful for folks who have difficulty controlling like the, the pressure of them pressing into things or not. It gives them like the, that, that feeling. It's also really intimate and can be invasive. So, you know, just be really careful on that one. Um, because uh, a person may not feel comfortable, you may not feel comfortable with it, uh, but just know that it is a proven technique uh, to help folks uh, learn how to do activities. Uh, habit training, again, remember, we're focusing only on the person here. That's why uh, I'm, only, uh, I'm presenting these things, but habit training is a major piece of this and, and then skill building. So repeat, 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 it takes a long time. Uh, the implementation intentions uh, thing that I'm showing you here, I'm gonna get into that. That's a specific habit training intervention that I'm about to present to you. Um, when you're doing habit training, because things are, are, are uh, the habits are response to a con uh, stimulus in the context, habit training often involves modifying the context to put the stimulus in place. So uh, that, that's usually um, uh, something that comes along with it. Um, oh yeah, and emotional regulation strategies are often, uh, uh, there's a lot of habit training that goes on with these. Uh, there are two ways of, of dealing with emotional regulation with folks. You know, there's the, the preventative form. So that's, so you're trying to develop uh, habits uh, of, of, of relaxation, basically uh, routines and habits where a person is integrating rela relaxing activities throughout their daily, um, uh, their daily routine so that they're, they're keeping their baseline low. You know what I mean? And then there's the, uh, the emotional regulation that is for acute instances. So when you're really experiencing distress, a lot of anxiety, how do you get a person to manage their, um, their anxiety in those moments? also requires some habit training. You have to, sometimes I found it effective to give people um, like note cards or like little booklet things that they can carry with them that are very simple and concrete that they can pull out in a moment of distress. And it has like some very simple uh, uh, instructions 
that uh, guide the person through some kind of relaxation activity. Uh, but that's all habit training, which is why it's so hard to do. And then there's this last concept that's called backward chaining. Um, it's just like classic OT stuff, right? And this is all about um, uh, promoting success. So with backward chaining, what you do is you start with like the last step of the with backward chaining, what you do is you essentially start with the last step. You would have, everything would have already been done. And then the person does the last thing. Like if it's in the microwave, we'll just make it as simple as possible. They're literally opening the microwave, taking the food out and eating. And then the next time you focus, you back up one more time and you do the step before that. So it might be uh, pressing start after uh, the time has been inserted, or if they're doing well enough, they could do the whole interface and put in the numbers and press start. And then when that's successful, you back up one more putting it, the food in and then you continue on. You can see how you're basically building backward chaining and making sure that everything is successful. Uh, as, so the person is constantly experiencing success while also simultaneously learning. Um, that one's pretty hard to actually put into practice and you really need to be uh, with somebody a lot. Um, so, you know, uh, it, it's very effective, uh, but you may not have the luxury of doing it. All right. Now, when we talk about habit training, remember, uh, habits are automatic, so they fight against uh, your intentional actions uh, and that the, they're dependent on cues. So you're really going to want to pay attention to social, uh, sensory and environmental cues. Um, we've already covered all this stuff. I don't think I need to repeat uh, how to establish this. But, so I'll jump right into implementation intentions. OK, oh, first, this part uh, <laughs> when you're doing habit training. First, the, the tips, uh, of course, making sure that you work with a client always needs to happen. Right. Uh, but, you know, habits, since they're so difficult to break and instill in somebody, the person absolutely has to be motivated. It can't be something that they're like lukewarm on doing. You have to have total buy in on that. So if you need to work on someone's uh, a buy in on something, first of all, you got a question on whether you have uh, effectively identified something the person values. Then there's the uh, motivational interviewing, which um, can be a way when someone doesn't see the value in a certain activity, but then you uh, link it to something that the person values uh, because they are indeed linked, uh, then the person uh, uh, will do the activity. So an example of that in motivational interviewing, for instance, is if someone doesn't want to work on self-care because they don't see the point right? Uh, you link it to like an outing that the person values. And uh, so they're shooting actually for the outing and the self-care is a part of, of that. So like, that's how the, you can motivate somebody to do something they don't want because it's actually linked to their ability to participate in something they do want. Okay. Uh, so, you know, finding the cue within the person's natural context and natural routine is important here. One of the most effective ways to do habit training is to, to link on to an existing habit. Because remember, routines, like they're, they're self-fulfilling. And if you want to instill a new habit, but you have an existing routine, well, that's a great opportunity. You try to find somewhere in that existing routine that you can hook that habit onto. So uh, taking medication. You can just tell somebody to take their medication. They may even want to take their medication. They're not going to do it unless you help them link it onto something that they're doing. So for instance, you know, if a person goes to coffee, uh, get their coffee every day, linking the habit to the, 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 doing the coffee. Uh, the medication habit to doing the coffee is an effective way of creating a routine because you've already got something permanent that's that's difficult to stop and you're, you're really just adding on to it you're building on a strength a habit strength now you know of course focusing on small changes is the best i've been saying this a lot they're much easier to achieve and they promote self-efficacy and the repetition needs to happen 66 days is what the research says that's an average remember the more sophisticated habits which are the ones we're usually shooting for take more than 66 days and then the simpler ones uh, uh, do less. So right there, I uh, have that written, actually. And those were the two actually mentioned in the, the study 
that uh, concluded that 66 reps was important. All right, here is the implementation intentions thing. So what, what this habit training intervention does is it's all about developing an action plan that is super concrete with somebody. It's that simple. But if you don't do it, it'll be really hard to implement this. So what you're trying to do, again, is you're, you're creating a behavioral response by linking on to another habit, as I mentioned. You use if-then type of wording or when-when. An example of it is instead of saying I will eat fruit daily, right? Something that we probably all should shoot for, right? Uh, and a lot of goals that folks have, yeah, I'll eat a fruit, uh, a piece of fruit every day. Instead of saying that, you say, when I'm watching TV, and I will eat a piece of fruit instead of chips. Because for this particular person, they had a habit of eating chips while watching TV. So those things were together. The watching TV part was a habit. So they're trying to hook onto that other one, right? Instead of just saying very abstractly, I'm gonna eat some fruit sometime during the day. There's no context, there's no like specificity behind it. It's just really not gonna happen. This works for yourself, by the way. So um, you know, if you have new habits you wanna do, keep this in mind. Uh, so again, the cue is often an environmental modification. A lot of times uh, visual prompts are the best way to do it. You can even put pictures of something like, you know, if somebody needs help remembering to brush your teeth, you can even have a picture of a toothbrush next to something. You could have the toothbrush itself in a strategic location. Uh, I'm highly encouraging you to modify the environment to put stimuli in place that will, that will encourage that behavior. All right. So what you basically do when you do these, you develop aims with somebody and they were mentioned uh, uh, in the previous slide. They're not goals, okay? Because you don't want to confuse that, that language. You don't want to make things too clinical again. Uh, so you make them uh, shorter term aims. And, and these three example, uh, these two examples, I'm sorry, show the difference between something that's vague and something that's precise. You know, instead of saying, I will take out the trash three times a week, you will say, I will take out the trash after breakfast three times a week. Instead of saying, I will take my, my medications daily, it's I will take it every morning while making coffee, right? And you can have that in place and then you, those, those words in place that you've created with somebody and then you can have the environmental cue as well to help the person do it. Now, I mentioned this yesterday. Anytime someone's going through a major transition in their life where they're having to recreate new habits, think about you, uh, what happened with COVID-19. I mean, we had to do major transitions there. Anytime you have uh, to go through a major transition, it's an opportunity to create a new awesome habit. Um, you know, Again, the deeply uh, ingrained ones are hard to change, but if you, you completely change somebody's environment, those other habits are no longer being triggered. So that's the time to do the new one. So a lot of people actually use this quarantine um, to, to develop new exercising habits. So it'll be interesting to see when the environment shifts again back to uh, um, you know, being more open, which is what's happening right now, if those habits will stick because the environment will have shifted again, right? Um, I'm telling you, this stuff is great for us, right? So this is straight from a, a research study. Um, I'm not saying you have to use this, uh, this formatting, but this is kind of like a, a rough uh, guide uh, on how uh, people can um, develop new habits. I would say if you're gonna use this clinically uh, yourselves um, with, uh, with your clients, simplify the language a lot. There's a lot of extraneous information here um, and there are too many words, uh, but for yourselves, it's, uh, it's good. Um, so, you know, deciding on a goal, choosing a simple action plan, planning where and when, being consistent, time and place. Uh, every time you encounter that time and place, do the action. And supposedly within 10 weeks, you'll be doing it without realizing it. And so here, again, it's, it, it structures things for you. You write your goal, 
So I want to eat more fruit vegetables. I want to exercise. I want to socialize. I want to do whatever. And you say the when and where I will do this. Okay. So in addition to that, this study recommended that you also keep track of your time uh, and, uh, you know, making sure that you uh, show that you do things daily. I'm just putting this up here as an example. You don't need to do this. This could be overwhelming for folks, uh, but it could also be very, uh, uh, like, rewarding visually for folks. So it's another way of doing things. So here, you know, you would just basically check um, each week whether you're doing the habit so you could check whether you're indeed uh, developing the habit that you intend to develop. So that's just an example. Normally, I have folks participate and share uh, habits that they want to do, but I'm thinking in the interest of time, I'll keep going. Um, maybe you could just spend time thinking for yourself, you know, something that you want to do. So what if you wanted to do 10 more push-ups a day? You know, just integrate that somewhere. Again, saying that I'm going to do it anytime time today, you're really relying on having a moment where you're like, this is a great time to do that, as opposed to, you know, right before I get in the shower in the morning, I'm going to do 10 push-ups. It just seems so much more doable, right? So maybe you guys can come out of this training with a small step that you can do towards a healthier behavior um, to change your own habits. Just remember, and I know I've said this a lot, they're resistant to change. So you're, you're fighting an uphill battle when you're doing that. Okay. Now we're going to talk about interventions that target the environment. And this is where I think uh, most of us can have the, the greatest impact. Remember, these are things that are much easier to change. Um, so you're really thinking about removing barriers and adding facilitators. So it's not just removing barriers. A lot of times what this looks like is adding organization or structure to someone's environment or adding prompts. Uh, a lot of folks we work with um, have very disorganized lives because of just a lot of what they're dealing with. And adding structure and organization can be really helpful. I mean, if you think about any time you've taken on a new task or you're starting a task, if everything is just cluttered in a mess in front of you, like just that in of itself can be overwhelming just to find the stuff that you have to use for a task. So um, if you can remove that part of the process, the finding, the seeking, uh, that's frustrating and um, anxiety provoking, then you remove a major barrier in somebody's ability to accomplish something. So we've all sadly seen this in our own places. Um, and again, let me reemphasize the point that it's okay apparently when we do this, but folks with a serious mental illness are not allowed to it. Uh, so there's that justice issue there. So please be, uh, be aware of that cultural imperialism we, we keep talking about. Uh, but you know, when, when you're thinking about a task, if, if anyone's got to cook right here, you're not going to cook if you see that, right? It's like five o'clock, you got to prepare food for family and you see this it's just not going to happen, right? So that's why the structure and the organization is such a key uh, piece here. So making sure that there is sufficient space for the task to even occur, that like the environment, not only that is it conducive to it, but that it's even possible in that environment, making sure that that is a thing before you start your intervention is key, right? So remove the color, the clutter, think about whether your, your, your client can easily access necessary items. So if they have any mobility issue, if they're an older adult or any other chronic health issue uh, where they're having trouble reaching for things or like bending down and reaching for things, those are major barriers. And the person may not tell you that that's something that's stopping them from do it, so doing it. So making sure that you, you move these things, all these things, the tools that people do to make them accessible and that they're like um, even better, like within visual, like where a person is normally looking. So in, in like a pretty narrow visual, um, uh, 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 what's the word area, I guess. I don't know. But, um, 
So if somebody, again, can't even reach a, a plate that's a, a, in, um, in a, a particular uh, cabinet, then you've got to make sure you move that. Uh, this stuff's so intuitive, but you have to remember to do it. Also making sure that you, you introduce visual modifications to reduce decision making and problem solving. So when I'm saying this, think about using a microwave, right? Um, most of the microwaves that we see, a lot of them have like just tons of numbers on them, right? I don't use but like three of them and there's they're overwhelming and uh, it's just too much we're actually gonna i'm gonna show you some examples of this soon okay uh so think about how you can simplify those controls think about how the microwave itself it's, it's actually like an amazing intervention if you can get somebody to use a microwave effectively you can cook almost anything in there and safely and simply but the instructions are a major barrier so how can you simplify that for somebody uh other interventions that you can do are um uh you know <clears throat> removing the sensory barriers. So if someone's going to work, for instance, and they have their table or, or whatever, their workspace has like a, um, a, a window where they can see outside and like maybe they're visually distracted by everything they see outside and not attending to work, then maybe you could move the workspace or uh, space or maybe close the, win uh, the window in a way that they can't see out of it anymore. Those kinds of adjustments can be very important for someone who has any difficulty focusing. Um, also making sure that the necessary task items are in the area that the person uh, needs to work in. So again, you're minimizing the need to seek and find things. You're minimizing frustration level here. Um, making sure there's enough light, because sometimes we just don't have enough light. Uh, and then in the light being present, making sure the glare is not too much. Because remember, some of us are really bothered by glare, particularly the older you get. I'm sad to say the older you get, glare is going to become more and more of the issue. Okay. Um, yeah, and so, uh, well, I had it right there. And then, of course, the auditory distractions. So remember, the auditory distractions, one way to get over it is to replace the auditory stuff with something new. If you're in a workplace or any situation that is shared by others, it's not like you can just say, tell everyone to be quiet. So you need to make the modification uh, that is reasonable uh, in that environment. So again, putting on headphones or listening to something consistent that the person is predictable that helps them focus could be very helpful here. Okay. So when I talk about adding organization and structure, this is sort of what I'm talking about. This is what my pantry looks like, uh, probably most of you. But think about opening this. If, you, if you're really disorganized and you're having trouble focusing and you open this uh, pantry and you're supposed to find something in it, you're not going to find it in there. Now, look at how different that could look up here. Um, I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? Mine doesn't look anything like that, <laughs> but it's it's a very effective thing. So I'll tell you what I did do, uh, and this is a good strategy for you guys to do, and I think I um, mentioned it here, task bins that contain all the necessary materials to a task. So my kids, they love uh, waffles from scratch, banana buttermilk uh, waffles from scratch, and they asked me to do it every weekend, and I got so tired every weekend of going in there and sorting through all the stuff to find all the ingredients to make it from scratch. So what I did... I OT'd myself and I created a bin and I threw all the, uh, the stuff I use in that one bin. So every Sunday when my kids are begging for that now, I just pull out that one bin. The rest of the stuff still looks like this, but at least I have that one bin in there and I pull it right out and then I don't have to search anymore and all my stuff is right there. Um, that is something that can really work for folks. If you can separate like different tasks and materials in bins for people to just be able to access. So think about cleaning supplies, think about different uh, cooking recipes or different, whatever someone has to do in the home. Um, because of course, if someone's homeless, you know, this is a, this is a much bigger challenge, but um, think about in the bathroom, how you can, uh, you know, have like a, 
for uh, a shaving area or, you know, different uh, types of activities that can be separated with bins can really make things much easier for folks. And they can just pile things back in the bin and then throw it back into where uh, they were, um, uh, the bin is stored. So that helps them keep uh, the, the area clean. Um, this won't work for everybody, but it will work a lot for some folks. Here, what you're really doing is making the environment easier to navigate. You're removing barriers, you know, you're making the environment predictable. You're removing problem solving, you're removing searching. What you're doing is you're preserving cognitive energy, okay, uh, and, 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 and frustration tolerance. You don't want to scuttle your intervention with stuff like this, okay? Uh, again, you know, making sure things are at eye level and making sure you're sensitive of physical limitations. Because don't forget that uh, a lot of our folks lead, uh, lead a very sedentary lifestyles. And um, for anyone who does a lot of cooking, uh, it's actually pretty exhausting to stay on your feet a lot. So if you're not accustomed to standing on your feet a lot, uh, it, it is a lot to ask from somebody who leads, uh, who leads a very sedentary lifestyle. And the research shows that this, our population is, uh, is over, um, overly sedentary. So um, let's see. Any other? Yeah, positioning materials themselves as prompts can be very effective. We do this to ourselves all the time as well. You know, um, you leave something out overnight to make sure that you see it on your uh, during your morning routine so that you don't forget it or sometimes you may even put a note out for yourself uh, we do these interventions to ourselves all the time but some folks who are having a little bit more trouble with that cognitive um, uh, problem solving may not have uh, may not have that step to develop that strategy uh, so it's it's your role to facilitate that development something that that you're doing yourself that you can help someone else develop okay uh, right. So a lot of times, yeah, locating medication dispensers and positioning clothes, for instance, uh, those are ways to actually use objects to instigate a behavior. Okay. Now here we're talking about um, more uh, more concrete forms of the structure, using checklists that have like task sets. So here, you know, somebody who's uh, has to clean the living room, and when they're cleaning the laundry room, there are these steps that they, they follow. I'm not saying that these are good steps for you to follow. It's kind of weird uh, sequence of steps, actually. But uh, the point being is that it outlines exactly everything someone is supposed to do. So instead of saying, clean your home, that can be so overwhelming because it's so abstract. Where do I start? What do I do? Uh, you provide that structure, and you have the list. Um, remember, writing it down is better than saying it out loud. If you say something out loud, you can't expect someone to retain that. You can't expect anybody to retain anything you say out loud. Uh, but if it's in written form, the person can refer to it. And I can hear somebody already saying, well, what if somebody can't read? Excellent. Good point. Then you can do uh, more visual stuff like what's going on right here. You see, um, we could focus this in a bit more, but this is like a classic um, uh, picture type sequence of just showing how to wash your hands, right? You'll notice right here that they also have the letters written on it, I mean, the, the, the words, instructions. Um, that's something you must develop with whoever you're working with. Some folks want pictures, some folks don't want pictures, some folks want words, some don't want words. And sometimes real world pictures work better, right? Some folks, uh, if you take pictures of them doing the activity in their home, so them actually washing their hands, uh, that that can be really effective. And if you do that, make sure that you don't just necessarily take a picture of the whole person washing their hands, but you focus in on the activity itself. So you focus in on their hands actually in the water and it's them. Okay. Um, there are a lot of ways to, to put this kind of structure in place. Uh, you know, don't forget about these culturally cultural symbols that are, that we, we know like this, you know, people who have grown up in the United States, they know this symbol. It's very, very clear. So integrate it in your, um, take advantage of that cognitive habit, that, that cultural cognitive habit. 
the person's from another country, they may not have the same stop signs uh, or do not enter signs. So just be aware of that as well, okay? Because uh, then that won't be very effective either. I put the Carolina thing here, not just because I'm a huge uh, Tar Heel fan, um, but also because um, you need to take the interests and try to put them on uh, a person's um, uh, forms of structure, right? So making sure you're matching the skills with the needs, whether you use objects, pictures, or words, I say objects right here, but this is with folks who are very, very, very challenged in, in processing um, where uh, you would need um, an actual object. This, I use this when, uh, more when I was working with uh, uh, children with uh, autism who had uh, significant challenges. We would give objects to, uh, for a person to realize what activity they were going to do next. So uh, I suspect in the community you're not going to be doing much of that, but just know that that's another way uh, that you can create visual structure. So you want these things to be simple and concrete. Okay, as promised, I'm going to critique the CDC guidelines now. This is what you find uh, in terms of CDC guidelines for COVID-19. There's a lot going on right here that is inaccessible to anyone with uh, any cognitive or visual challenges. I mean, look how difficult it is to sort through this. Uh, they use pictures here, but come on, that's, that's not, these aren't pictures that are informing you, right? They're not really helping. I mean, they're barely informative. So they're, they're almost there just as visual markers of a different section. You know, I mean, avoid close contact. I guess that kind of says that, but it's not really informative. There's way too much text here. You can't rely on someone with uh, significant cognitive and sensory uh, issues to be able to process this information. Yet this is what is out there. Um, here's uh, just another page of, of what they offer. Um, I mean, just think about how uh, this can be simplified more. It really needs to be simplified more. So I'm going to keep moving, okay? Uh, let's see. Now, usually I would ask you guys to create a visual prompt for a CDC guideline and send it to me, and then I would share you some examples. But I'm not sure we're going to do that because we may not have the time. Maybe we'll get to it at the end if, uh, if I finish this stuff quickly. But we'll, we'll go ahead and skip this now. But I want you guys to think about how you would do this. Um, think about how you could take something like washing your hands and, and, and communicating it in a much better way. Because if you just take this right here and give it to somebody, well, that's not gonna be very effective, right? So how could you communicate something like this with only pictures? It's not that hard to do. And there are actually a lot of examples of it on, online, right? Uh, and one example would be this, and I wouldn't say you have to just rely on this. You know, honestly, if you're working on this with somebody, I think it would be a good idea, if, if you find like a bunch of things online like this, I think it'd be a good idea to present it to the person and let them choose what they prefer. You know, have some different options, talk it through. What do you like? The person may not even be willing to have this because the downside about putting structure and prompts up is that it really, it changes the person's environment uh, in a positive way in terms of function, but it's also like labeling. And if a person's very sensitive about, um, you know, uh, being stigmatized or, uh, you know, they have have uh, roommates who, who don't have mental illness, for instance, uh, and they're, they're sensitive to the, 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 the sociocultural issues that may be coming out of that, they may not want any prompts up. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's really a problem solving process. Uh, you have to talk to your, uh, your client in that case and figure out like, okay, so how can we discreetly put these up? Because um, there are strategies for doing that as well. Okay. You know, I'm bashing the CDC, but like this is not, their job is not uh, in, uh, in, in, in adapting this information, right? So, you know, they're, they're doing a terrific job putting this out. Uh, so this is, uh, these are some of their adaptations, their visual adaptations. So don't do this, right? What I like about what they did here though, so these are two separate ones, is at least they took out a major uh, lesson 
or point and you know really focused on it. Wash your hands with soap or often, I'm sorry, and water for at least 20 seconds. So at least there, that's much better than this, right? Much better. However, you know, okay, I got to wash my hands for 20 minutes. How many of you have actually had somebody wa uh, watch you wash your hands? I bet the majority of you, because I got caught on this, even after working in hospitals for a long time, the majority of you are not doing it right. Um, where I got busted was actually I was missing this part of my hand a lot. This part right here, because of just I just had this strategy where I was doing this. You know, I thought I was doing great. I was even putting my nails in here, getting because that's supposedly how you get underneath your nails. I was doing all right, but I, I was totally missing this right here, and I got busted. Um, so you know, if if all of us are having trouble with this kind of thing, you know, uh, someone with cognitive challenges who needs instructions on how to wash their hand, you probably can't rely on just a simple instruction like this, right? Uh, because none of us are doing it very well. <laughs> you are all, all going to go home paranoid about how you wash your hands. Um, so again, you know, right here, uh, what I do like about here, and this is like a simple thing, a way to simplify any kind of text when you're doing any presentation or right, communicating information, take all the words and out and just replace them with this. It's such a simple modification that so many people don't do, but it, it literally decreases three letters into one simple that everyone gets. And it just it reduces clutter, uh, simple things like that, strategies like that can make information uh, seem much uh, presented in a much more effective manner. Now, this is one adaptation and I won't out the organization that did it, so I don't have uh, them on it, but this is one um, uh, adaptation that they did. I still think it needs improvement though, but here at least the pictures are, 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 this, are they're like central, you know what I mean? There's, it's still a little vague, I mean, I do like how they're saying you need to wash your hands for 20 seconds, but you know, it doesn't give you much instructions on how to do it. At least here, it's telling you not to touch or not to cough into your mouth. Uh, but what's interesting is the instructions don't really match the image there. So that's an issue, right? Uh, and this one's not informative at all, right? Stay at home if possible. They just have a picture of a home. So that's an example of using an image in a very ineffective way, right? There, I would um, actually probably put two images, one showing, um, uh, a person not staying at home and one staying at home or here this is probably the better way for the example i'm giving you social six feet social distancing um that's not helpful either like how does somebody know visually what six feet looks like you know uh, you could use things like arm's length or uh or i think what's really effective is thinking you know uh identify something in the person's home so if a person has a home uh, or something uh, in their environment that they see all the time like a couch or uh you know whatever bench you might be occupying a lot uh keep a bench or a couch between you and someone else like that distance. So you're taking something very concrete that the person knows what it's like in their mind and then using that as the, the, the distance marker, as opposed to saying something super abstract, like six feet. You know, when you hear that, you're like, ah, I got to take out the tape measure. I don't even know what that really looks like. And uh, I remember when I first started hearing, I was trying to imagine what a six foot person would look like laying down. And I'm like, well, that, that doesn't work either. Uh, I really should just be measuring something that I know and then thinking of it that way. Okay. Moving on. Oh yeah, social narratives. So this is something that is like directly stolen from uh, from a, a work with in autism, okay? Because that's how I got into OT. And I've been using this clinically for a while now and per report, and so, you know, my experiences and per report of my consultations with other folks where I've had them do this, that this is very effective for them as well. We need to study out with it though. But basically what social narratives do, uh, there are, uh, 
well, short narratives that explain a living skill for somebody, okay? You need to write them collaboratively because they're written uh, from the person's perspective, the client's perspective. And the client is gonna be the one who's gonna be reading this before engaging in whatever activity. So you really wanna make sure that it is, um, that it's something that's like natural to the person and that they're, because they're gonna be reading a lot. Uh, ideally, you want the person to read this immediately prior to their participation in whatever skill you're doing. Uh, and it can target things like interpersonal skills, accessing uh, resources, building your confidence. Um, it can also, um, people use a lot for emotional regulation, um, like uh, challenges at work and things like that. So I'm gonna give you an example right here. Okay, this is an example of one. Uh, for somebody at work who's having trouble um, uh, that gets into a lot of arguments at work over sports. This is stuff that I've seen happen a lot, okay? So I'm gonna read it to you. At work, I talk to people. We talk about different things like sports, food, friends, and things we like to do. One of my favorite things to do is watch Carolina basketball. I like to talk about the games at work. Some of the people I work with do not like Carolina. They like other teams. When my team wins, it makes me very happy. When my team loses, I am very frustrated. When someone at work jokes with me about my team losing, that makes me frustrated too. Sometimes it makes me angry and this can lead to an argument. I do not want to get into an argument or into trouble at work. I could lose my job. When I feel frustrated or angry about a disagreement at work, I should take a break and leave the conversation or say I'm sorry, but I can't talk about this anymore. I changed that, sorry, and end the conversation by telling my coworker we can agree to disagree. So obviously those last three options need to be collaboratively developed, including the rest of the narrative. Now, you know, this doesn't work for everybody. Some folks might, you know, feel like it's too childish for them, but I can tell you uh, it, it has worked in, I, I have seen it work in the community with adults with serious mental illness who have jobs. Um, sometimes it can, uh, I've used it to like be sort of a pep talk to somebody and so that they could like boost their self-confidence. And so they would essentially read a narrative to themselves, uh, celebrating their successes and what they're good at, for instance, acknowledging their challenges. And then, you know, like it needs to be collaboratively written. And so that's why there's like no, you know, one way to do it, but, um, it can be really, really, really effective and it can be effective to yourself. Honestly, if you write one for yourself, you write yourself like a little, uh, it could be something really simple, like a tiny paragraph, like a pep talk that you give yourself every time, even before you do anything, trust me, it will work. Um, don't underestimate that one. All right, now, so what I have here, don't be worried about all this stuff. This is really here uh, for you as a resource for thinking about um, how you uh, modify things like um, uh, instructions and, or the environment, I'm sorry, in controls. So right here, we have the, uh, the Center for Universal Design, this resource that you can go to. Uh, you may or may not have heard from it, but it's actually right down the road from me. It's at NC State um, University, uh, which is a great engineering school. And then of course, the ADA standards on accessible design. Um, so this is an excerpt out of one of those, uh, you know, way down, uh, and I'm not gonna, you know, visit every single point here, but just so you realize that it, these things exist and that you can access them and they are very informative on how to make things easier. So here you're looking at microwave ovens, ranges, stovetops, and wall ovens, and you're, you're, you're looking at things that are important to consider on whether they're accessible or not. So if you're moving into a new place with somebody, like it's a really good time to take a look at this stuff. Um, it, it, it guides you on how to think about displays and labels and how large the lettering should be, how much the contrast should be, all that. I mean, it's very, very, very helpful stuff. 
and other uh, features that you need to look at. Okay, so this slide is really here for you as a resource. So now we're gonna go and do some looking at the actual instructions on cooking. Okay, because so, I think it kind of brings together all the stuff we've been talking about here in terms of environmental modifications and uh, instruction modifications. Okay, so this is the back of a macaroni and cheese from Trader Joe's. Um, I don't get a penny from Trader Joe's, by the way, so I'm not trying to advocate Trader Joe's, but uh, uh, what I want you guys to look at is the instructions here, okay? So the instructions are right here, and I pulled them out and put them right here as well. So this is the same thing here as here. And so what I like about this here is there's actually a pretty decent contrast, right? The letters really stand out from the back. It's okay. It'd be better if it was black and white. Uh, the instruction section is actually easy to find. You see how you got, you see how it's boxed off from the rest of the information. So it kind of stands out from this. It doesn't like melt, melt into this text right here. Um, however, what I don't like is it's, look at it right here. It's just like this narrative. There's no steps. There's no one, two, three, four, five. It's just the narrative of stuff to do. So why that's bad is because you could start reading here. Okay, I do this. Okay, now I got to go uh, to my stove. And now I, when I come back to the instructions, I need to reorient myself to this paragraph and find where I left off, which is way more difficult than just going to number two if you did number one. That's what I'm talking about in terms of setting up people for success and simplifying instructions. Uh, also, this that, yeah, so they're not clearly ordered um, in terms of like, they tell you to cook for eight to 10 minutes. So let's pretend you do I'll cook for eight to 10 minutes. And then you're okay. I finished. Oops. I was supposed to stir once at five minutes. Like it doesn't make sense for the, the instructions to appear in that order. They should have been cook for five minutes, stir cook for five more minutes, right? Those things are confusing. The small, the, the font is terribly small. Uh, if you actually have a box, you know, it's like about this tall. So you can imagine uh, the font is on something like this small and that's a lot of text there. Uh, and then there's all this, you know, information you don't need there, like the fact that it's you're putting natural cheddar cheese packet in there. You know, Trader Joe's is trying to like make their product sound great, but that's a barrier in communication right there. It should just be put put the cheese packet, right? So uh, things for you to consider. Because remember, if you're working with somebody that is having trouble cooking, like these are the kind of things that 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 matter. We're gonna look at uh, several more of these, okay? Because I feel like this is a good uh, exercise for folks. So. Now you do it. Tell me what you like here and what you don't like. So again, more Trader Joe's. Uh, and I pulled out the, um, the instructions from here. So that's where they are. So this text, this box right here comes from there. So go ahead and uh, put in the chat a couple things that you think are good and bad. And please label. Yep. Listed with numbers too, right? The steps are listed. What else? Good contrast. I mean, it's, yeah, it, it's good for, if you don't have a visual issue. So it, it actually can be uh, difficult. The instructions bleed. Do you mean that like they're going from one to the other and they're not um, clearly separated between the oven and the microwave maybe, or, okay. Yeah, that's a good point. The good thing about it though, is that the letters are big, but you're right. It, these need to be separated better. Wait for one more. They are small. I mean, if you look at this back here, it's all small. So, okay, I'm gonna give, go ahead and uh, move forward though, in the interest of time. So, good, 
uh, is that it's bold lettering, you know, and the caps uh, are on different cooking methods, but they do bleed together. You're right. So they tried to do this here, which is better than nothing, but I think you're right. There should be a line here probably, right? Uh, numbered, you guys said that, and clear, succinct the directions. So think about this. The, there are clear action words starting each sentence. Remove the tray. Heat on high. Probably don't need carefully, but peel back. Heat four. You see, like, that's very clear front uh, stuff. Now, I know you guys like the contrast, but actually it's not so good for folks with visual issues. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, if you don't, it's, it's actually very good contrast. It could be a lot worse, okay? It's not terrible contrast, but it's not the best. Uh, if it's like red on green or green on red, then you're really, really in trouble there. Um, oh, yeah, and the instructions are not clearly separated from the rest of this stuff, right? Because all this text kind of goes with the ingredients right there. All right. I'm going to save you guys. I'm going to do this one uh, myself. So here again, we have uh, this bag right here. And this, these are the instructions so you can see them. So what I like about this one is that these steps are numbered as well. They have pictures included, but, you know, they're mildly informative, but at least it's, it's not terrible. I don't know why they don't have any pictures for the microwave, though, as opposed to the skillet. That's interesting. I like how um, the uh, instructions start, like, with a bold capitalized action words, stir and serve, you know, cook very clearly bolded and, and capitalized. So you can really see it. And, there, and there's not like a ton of extraneous stuff. Uh, the contrast is not the best. White on blue is not the best. Um, and it's, if you have visual issues and it's like terrible, if there's any glare on the packet, you're never going to see it. Uh, but then, you know, one of the bad things is like, there are a couple steps within one single step. Like they didn't need to do that, you know, stir and serve again, like technically that should be separate or, you know, open, empty, and then add, like, if someone's really struggling, you probably want those to be three different uh, steps, right? Things like that. Moving on. All right. This one's a nightmare for me. So this is uh, pulled out right here. Okay. That contrast, ah, like visually, I don't know if you guys are having a hard time here, but this background, particularly when it's in, like in digital form, it's better when it's in like the actual packet, but right here, I can't see a thing. Um, it is very difficult for me to look at this, but you know, what's good is that they do have the numbers here. They have pictures. So, you know, that could be a TV and that could be anything. So those aren't very, very, very helpful, right? They're again, they're not informative. So don't even bother, but the numbers are there and they do have, um, nice action words. So that's good if you can even make it out. Um, yeah. So let me see. I find the background very disoriented. Now look what happens when you change the background. So I'm not saying you need to do this for everybody, but at least for me, on the left, it's so much easier to read than on the right. Now, and I don't know how it's translating on your computer screen. It may not work very well right here, but on my screen right here, the left is way easier. And I just played with the, um, uh, the uh, coloring sections. Um, uh, so what this speaks to is also the fact that maybe you don't need to be uh, buying uh, new products all the time and that you want some consistency in the products you're using as well, right? I'm going to revisit that issue in a minute. All right, so this is the last one we're going to look at right now, and then we'll move on to uh, uh, controls on appliances. But here, okay, so again, visually, like, it's kind of a nightmare here. Um, you know, they have pictures, but, like, it's not, it's not particularly informative. Uh, at least they're colored here, so it's a little bit easier to see, but in black and white, it's not. Um, but what's good is they tell you, they go ahead and tell you what you need to prepare and what you need to have in, a, in advance. So that's actually really effective. Um, and then look at these instructions. I mean, it's too bad they're using this fancy font, but uh, I like how like 
those action words really stick out. I mean, they're, they're not just bolded, uh, uh, they're not capitalized, but they're, they're like the font itself is just much larger. Uh, those are those are all things that you can consider in terms of making things more accessible, right? Okay. So what do you do, right? Uh, so make sure you assess how your client interacts with their ins with instructions. Consider their learning styles and the sensory preferences again. As I mentioned, make sure you're buying the same product, you know, because it eliminates that ambiguity going from product to product. Um, there's less problem solving. A person gets used to cooking mac and cheese in a certain way, and then that's all you do. I know a lot, uh, the folks we work with often have significant budget issues, right? So we're always looking for ways to save money. And that includes finding the best deals at any grocery store we go into. And, you know, it's not always worth it if you're not saving a ton, right? Like are the extra pennies you're saving worth the new functional challenge you're introducing if the person's unable to use the product? Maybe not, maybe so. It all depends on who you're working with. Just keep that in mind though, that if someone is really struggling with cooking that you, you wanna, or any activity for that matter, you wanna make it as consistent as possible so that the learning is easy and new challenges don't uh, come about. Another way to uh, do this thing, especially if you're, if you're uh, buying the same product over and over again, uh, is you just create your own list of instructions for your person. You know, we've done this so many times in OT uh, with folks who have created like literally cooking books with recipes that uh, are very clearly labeled that the person has chosen themselves and that they like. I'm sure you guys have done similar uh, interventions yourselves. Uh, those things are, are very helpful. Um, they, they minimize decision making. Any of you all who are cooks, because um, I'm the cook of my family, um, even just thinking about what to cook that night can be overwhelming sometimes. I, I just don't even want to think about it. You know, I'd rather just go ahead and start it. So like actually having structure for what is going to be cooked can be very helpful. Like to me, just figuring out what to cook is the barrier. I love doing it on my own after that, not so much to clean up. Right. But um, thinking about what to do is difficult. So if removing those barriers uh, can help a lot. So another way you can do this uh, in addition to create your own instructions is adapt existing packages. If there's like a product your, your client really likes and it's cheap, it's great. Um, you know, maybe you can cover up some of the extraneous information on the back of some of these uh, packages, you know, like take a white sticker and just slap it on the back of the package to cover up the ingredients, to cover up the nutrition facts, um, you know, and just have the instructions there. It makes it a lot easier to orient to that section in the, um, uh, in the, um, on the back of the product. All right. Now we're gonna talk quickly about uh, controls on um, stovetops and uh, microwaves. Um, this is, you know, it's the same lessons apply for laundry making or any, any equipment anyone's gonna be using, okay? We want things to be super simple. So um, ignore the fact that this button's not attached to anything. Let's just pretend it's attached to something. And uh, just think, a thing, think about a moment on um, what is good, like the differences between this dial and these dials right here and just spend a couple seconds thinking about it. I'm going to give you guys the answers here. You don't even have to type in the, ans uh, the answers in the chat, but I'm gonna give you like just one minute to think about it. What is good about one versus the other? And don't think only in terms of cognition, right? Think physical stuff too. You need to train yourself to be thinking integrated in terms of integrated health. Uh, I forgot who suggested maybe taking an anatomy class if you are able. I know that's like overwhelming to think about, right? Because taking that class is while you're working full time is almost impossible, but um, it could be really beneficial because it might help you out with this kind of thinking here. So as you think, I'm going to go ahead and start labeling things. What I really like about this one here, a lot to be desired with it, but look at it. At least it's got numbers, right? So we got one, two, three, four, five. It's very clear. You can give a very clear instruction to somebody, turn it to number whatever. Here, 
so ambiguous, so ambiguous. You have no idea where you're supposed to. You don't know where like the middle is, where hot is. I know they have like this like line you can sort of tell right there that gets thicker and that's supposed to tell you, but that's, you know, that's really hard for people to tell. So if I had a client with this that really needed some structure, uh, I would start putting uh, stickers on these things to indicate where they need to uh, put the dial to, okay? Where this thing is terrible is that you can't tell whether this is the on part or this is the on part, right? There's no line there. So you don't know really where it goes. So if this dial were turned this way, you would have no idea if it's going to eight or two. That's a big problem. Easy fix is you put something on there. This one already has it on there. That's easy. May not be uh, visible enough. So you may want to amplify it, right? To, to make it even more clear. Uh, but that's a good thing. Another way this one is better than this one in terms of physical function. Think about somebody with any issue with their hands. Uh, arthritis, peripheral neuropathy, you know, a lot of folks that lose sensation in their hands due to medications or any other health issue they're dealing with. Uh, so if you're having hards with uh, uh, either loss of sensory function in your hands or loss uh, or pain in gripping things tightly, um, this one is much harder to use than these because this one is like it, the, the button's actually pretty low, so it doesn't stick out much. So you really have to grasp it. And somebody said hard to grasp. You got it. It's really hard to grasp. And if you have a lot of pain, that's very difficult. Someone with like severe arthritis, I would build up this handle a ton so that they could like even put their hand on it without even grasping it. Uh, whereas here, uh, it, it comes up really high. So that's nice. And it looks like it's a little thicker. So that's easier to grasp if you have like a lot of pain. Because remember, someone who has a lot of pain in their hands, compressing the joints hurts more than leaving them further open, right? So um, you wanna build up any handles for anybody who's having a hard time grasping. Um, okay, just judging by your chats, you guys are great. Okay, microwaves, which one's better and which one's worse? This is what I encounter all the time. This is a nightmare. I mean, think about it. Look at all these buttons and all these, these I mean, my current microwave is like this. And in reality, I barely use any of them. So what's the point, right? Anybody who, with any kind of cognitive issue and organization issue is gonna be overwhelmed by this, right? It's just, it's just ridiculous, I'm sorry. Uh, but it's also the norm. Right over here, this fancy one, I like this timing right here. This is terrific, right? You just turn it to where you need to turn it and it's very clear. You don't need to press like six, seven different buttons. You know, choose time, cook, enter your number and then press start. Uh, as opposed to right here, just turning, right? Very different approach. Now, you know, you might have a grasp issue here. Uh, this is easier to use for somebody with a, a lot of pain because they don't need to grasp everything. So again, remember, you really need to adapt these things for every person. But uh, in terms of cognition, this one's overwhelming. In terms of physical function, uh, this one's actually easier as well. I'm not sure whether this is the open button or uh, the start button, but either way, it's a gigantic button, which makes it very easy to use. You can even use it with your elbow as opposed to a finger, right? There's a very, there's a lot more that goes into doing this than this. Uh, so consider uh, those differences, right, as well. So if you're, if you're buying a microwave, you can, you have the luxury of, of assessing these different things. More often than not, right, we, we were put in a situation where there's an existing microwave. So what do you do when you have this? Because this is usually what you encounter. Well, it's the same as, as, as I mentioned before. You just put visual modifications in. I didn't do these because, uh, you know, it's a little, um, I would have done it a little bit different than this, but this is an example that I found on the internet. Um, what I like about this is it's very clear, you know, they're, obviously these are the buttons that the people are using. What's cool is that there's a different colors being used to, to signify different things. 
And then there's also, uh, if you notice, between the start and the off here, they're actually using like a tactile thing here. So here it's like foamy and you can touch it. Um, thank you, Stephanie. <laughs> uh, yeah, right here as you touch it, like you could, it, it, if you literally uh, had zero vision, you could use this microwave because you could tell with this tactile input that uh, that is a, it's coming out and it's a circle and then that start as opposed to off, which is square and fuzzy and not coming out, right? Um, and then, you, you know, for someone with low vision, at least you could tell uh, the color difference right here. What I like about right, this one right here, so assume you have somebody who has an oven, you're not going to be using broil or these other uh, um, uh, uh, options. You know the person's only going to be using bake, then you just make sure that you have, you instruct them to line this button up with this button, and that turns it on, right? I would also have one for off, honestly. I think that would be better. I would probably use green and red right here so that they know how to turn it off as well. I think they might have left out that step right here. But, you know, the, the lessons is there as far in terms of, of, of making the change right. And here you can see also that, you know, they're, they're clearly putting what high is versus medium is versus low is three, two, one. This would need to be client centered again. This is obviously for somebody with visual issues because there's some braille uh, taped right here. And you can see where uh, they drew the line, as we said, because that part's hard to distinguish. There's a lot to do here. Okay. I know we're running out of time, but we're, I only have a few more slides. Um, and we're going to talk quickly about interventions targeting the occupation, so the activity. Um, and so here, what you're really trying to do is you're, you're trying to make sure that things are simple and clear. So you want to take a complicated activity and make it as simple as possible. And that includes removing unnecessary steps. So I keep going to the laundry example because folks are, you know, get really passionate about this one when you, when you bring it up. It's interesting. But, uh, you know, uh, remove things like uh, needing to separate your laundry, you know, unless the person really wants to. Uh, but don't introduce more than needs to be there. Uh, absolutely. You could also add steps that save cognitive energy, right? So one example, potential examples, if you're measuring, if you have like liquid detergent or something like that, and you have to measure out an exact amount, um, instead of requiring the person to, you know, measure it in the cup, you could just figure out how many seconds it takes them to press that button to do it and then just rely on that counting. That could be a way to simplify the, um, the actual activity. Because um, actually, I've actually done that myself, uh, with myself. Um, so lessen the demands, you know, so, so that's also making sure that you adapt the activity for the person's uh, uh, issues. So if someone with a low vision, for instance, you could teach them how to enlarge the font on the computer or their phones. There are tons of adaptations you can do on all your smartphones that increase um, uh, accessibility, including uh, converting all your text to larger uh, fonts. Uh, so if your, your client has a cell phone, there's a lot that you can do there in terms of adding structure to a person's life and adapting the phone use to their needs. Um, also, you could just completely modify the occupation and introduce new strategies. So, for instance, instead of cooking eggs in a pan, which can be dangerous if someone has uh, safety issues, and also introduces all sorts of need to clean and to, you know, to monitor the activity as it's going, you could teach the person how to cook their eggs in the microwave, which, believe it or not, works really well. Um, and think about how much simpler that is in terms of cleanup and how much safer it is than using a stove. Um, I have uh, Fred's crossword puzzle here. Sorry, that's left over. Uh, in some of my trainings, we have vignettes. So Fred had crossword puzzles. But the lesson here is that, you know, um, if, so, if you see somebody with like uh, uh, an interest, 
Fred had a bunch of crossword puzzles that were laying beside his bed that were, or his chair, I'm sorry, that were not complete, that you um, take some time to think about it. And maybe uh, in this in this case, if the crossword puzzles were too complicated. And so the person, um, the solution here to get the person doing more crossword puzzles was to find crossword puzzles that matched his interests in cars and that were simpler so that he can complete them. And that's uh, that's what that's talking about. And of course, this is where like the line blurs between modifying the environment and environment and modifying the task. It's, you know, you, you add visuals, you add, uh, uh, you change the task to have the person refer to environmental cues. Uh, you could also teach different chunks of activity at a time to separate things. So you, you focus on the preparation stage. Okay, today we're going to make sure we know how to gather all the materials and then I'll really help you with the rest. Uh, or today we're really just going to focus on the cooking. I'm going to help you gather materials and do the rest, but we're going to do the cooking, you know, or uh, focus on the end. So making sure, make, and, and if you do that kind of chunking of activities and teaching them, make sure you are very clear with your client on what you do, because it's a collaborative effort. Okay. Now, uh, introducing new tools or ways of doing. Again, this is blurring the line between environmental or occupation modifi modification. It really doesn't matter because you, what you're doing is you're just adapting. You're not trying to change the person. That's the important part for you to know. Uh, but look at the, all these little fancy things here. This is a fancy uh, tool for somebody who has significant pain right here and, or just sensory loss to where they can't uh, figure out how to grasp this uh, uh, well enough. This tool, you can just put it on there and it, basically each one of these little uh, pins right here uh, that would touch the handle would push down and the other ones remain long. So it, it grasps for you and then you can just turn it. Well, right here, you know, it's, it's clearly labeling which one's hot versus which one's cold. Because uh, if you notice right here, it's actually backwards, right? And that actually happens a lot. And uh, if uh, the plumbing is not done correctly, they may uh, um, put these in wrong. So you need some clear labels sometimes. Also, the cool thing about these handles is that they come out and they're thick, easy to grasp, as opposed to maybe it was maybe like a little faucet thing. You know, there's like nightmare faucet things that you have to grasp with your hand and like move up or twist. Those are very difficult. Anything with handles is much easier to use than a knob. Knobs are nightmares. Handles, 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 handles. So if someone has any issue with that, even opening cupboards with little knobs is more difficult than a handle. Um, so that's something to, uh, to think about as well. Okay. Uh, and of course, of course, of course, of course, make sure you consider all the sensory features in, in this. You want to minimize these things. These are examples, again, for, uh, uh, from the vignettes. And the vignettes were uh, uh, composites of real-world examples. So the Sophia broccoli thing, this is a real-world uh, situation. Uh, this person uh, was um, interested in increasing uh, her um, uh, eating healthy, and uh, she uh, wanted to eat broccoli, uh, but uh, was having a really hard time actually enacting that. And we, after a long intervention, we just figured out that she didn't like uh, the broccoli uh, raw, and it was, it was a sensory thing leading to the crunchiness of the broccoli. And so then we ended up just microwaving the broccoli, and that led to her eating broccoli. So I don't know. Um, that was just an example of how you uh, can uh, that you need to pay attention to sensory features. So for instance, like, yeah, someone who has, I keep harping on like the Yankee candle smell and all that stuff. If you're sensitive to those intense smells, but then you provide somebody uh, with uh, like soaps or um, uh, you know, anything that has that intense smell, you may have gotten it for free. So you're really excited uh, that that the person may not want to use it for that reason. And they may not necessarily communicate that to you because they may not realize that that's why they're using it. There's just so many, variables here to consider. What this training was really uh, trying to do is to, to, to sort of habituate you to thinking about all the different things that can be addressed or for you to assess in this time. Uh, so that's it. I'm not going to provide much of a summary because I feel like I've been summarizing the whole time. I'm going to go right here 
uh, because I'm sure that's what uh, you folks want. Um, this is the evaluation piece. Uh, so with the four minutes we have left, uh, I just wanted to make sure to uh, have uh, just an opportunity for some questions. So feel free to raise your hand or insert something in the chat and we'll go from there. Wonderful. Thank you, Antoine, for for this great presentation. And, and team, I did put the evaluation information in the link in case that's easier for you guys to click. Um, and again, if there are questions, let's start peppering them in into the chat. Um, raise your hand. Um, just to get us started as we allow folks some time to fill out the evaluation um, and formulate their questions. But um, Anton, I, I really enjoyed um, some of those tips that you gave the group on living skills training, some of those key principles. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess I had some questions because I think in the literature or when we look at some of the resources that might be available for living skills training, sometimes it's in a group format, sometimes it's individual. Um, you know, obviously with habit training, it's, it's tough because we have to think about context, be it the environment and the time. So, I mean, of course, with clinicians and, and based on their schedules, it's, it's challenging to navigate some of those elements. So I, I don't know if you had any tips or tricks or things to really consider. It's like, hey, yes, really try to do this as an individual intervention or a group or um and then uh, to add to it, and I feel like this is not necessarily a succinct question, it's more like these are some of the challenges uh, in implementation, is of course then COVID-19 happens to throw a wrench in things. And, and of the folks on the line, right, some folks are on the field, some are, are at home, some are doing telehealth, um, some are only focused on essential services, however teams may define that. Um, so that really limits stuff like observation or, or hand over hand support. And it's very heavy on, on maybe verbal communication, especially if it's only phone and there's no video. So what are what are some things that you might encourage the team to think about in terms of, OK, I just sat through two days of really awesome trainings around assessment intervention. How how might I take that first step, especially given there's so many obstacles currently, especially? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question because we're dealing with this right now. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm in charge of a team that provides a sort of outreach to uh, folks uh, with serious mental illness who are homeless or at risk of homelessness. And so um, and in North Carolina right now, we haven't flattened the curve. You know, we're, we're still increasing. We're one of the hot spots and it's getting worse and worse here. So this is a major issue for us. It's been a major challenge. Um, first of all, a lot of the folks that we work with don't have phones. So there was that problem. So uh, in terms of telehealth, you know, this pandemic has really highlighted the disparities in, in health, right? We're world where it's very, uh, you know, the, the news at least is covering the fact that, um, you know, there's written, you know, horrible racial disparities in terms of the way it's affecting folks. But uh, what hasn't been in the news is that folks with serious mental illness um, don't have the resources to access telehealth, right? And so, Literally having the equipment has is, is been a major issue for us. So what we've done is we've collaborated with our local MCOs and we've started these pilot programs to give folks phones um, and they've been buying uh, smartphones uh, and giving them to them. Problem is, is that uh, some of the phones, we had two rounds of this and some of the phones didn't have enough data. So you couldn't do a video um, uh, conference, which, you know, takes away so much. Um, so in terms of like, how do you do this? You know, uh, this is an OT's nightmare, right? Because like, you want to be there with the person, you want to take in the whole context. So first of all, you know, uh, give yourself some compassion here. This is really hard stuff. We're making it up as we go. Uh, and there's no like, you know, slam dunk solution on any of this. 
so, you know, if you can't observe, you have to rely more on self-report, but we all know how problematic that is. Uh, folks are, you know, are not uh, just humans in general. We're notoriously bad at assessing our own skills. And we like think we're way better at certain things than we are. And then we're actually, we're actually really good at things we, we think we're horrible at. And this is across the board. Uh, so that's why like self-report is problematic. So I, I think like, I, you know, ultimately in the end, I think it's really important that you uh, try to keep the, uh, to, you target low hanging fruit, right? Stuff that is the easiest to target. You don't try to do too much. You try to find simple stuff that can be done um, uh, remotely. And, you know, if, if you have the luxury of someone having a phone uh, and having a sufficient data to do the video, there, there's a lot you can actually observe that way. And you can instruct a, a person to, to be able to um, position it some way that they can show you stuff. Um, you can certainly send the person uh, videos. Like there can be these like collaborative efforts that if, if the person, for instance, is living with someone else, like maybe they could have someone there video them and then send it to you. And then you could like give feedback. You know, there's like all these creative ways you could do, but it's very challenging to not do it in person. Um, you know, a lot of times you have to go in someone's home and that is very difficult, right? So if you don't feel comfortable doing that, think about what you can do out in public or in situations where you feel more comfortable uh, that would as closely mimic the, uh, the living skill you're working on. You may also want to just change your intervention targets because right now, honestly, uh, at least the people we're working with, uh, so I'm just speaking for, uh, for the cohorts that we're working with here, social isolation is the biggest thing they're dealing with right now. Uh, so yeah, they have this host of needs that we were working on before, but like just not feeling completely alone. So what we're doing is developing um, groups that are telehealth, um, that, uh, that we're doing, uh, that uh, OT groups like that, where basically everyone comes together and meets uh, um, virtually. And it's more about just getting to know each other, uh, talking about sharing uh, like how you're passing the time and, um, and what, uh, what, what's been, how you've successfully managed the pandemic, like that kind of a thing. We really want it to be a person-driven group, a client-driven group, so we're not imposing like a curriculum on them and the group itself will figure out what to do. Uh, but like those are the ways that, uh, so it, long story short, we changed our, uh, we changed our uh, modality of intervention and then we also changed our intervention targets to focus specifically on the most negative impact of COVID-19 for our folks, which was social isolation. And in terms of individual versus group interventions, group interventions offer a whole social piece to it that's really great. But um, you also, in terms of uh, developing specific living skills, they're not good, actually. Um, so they serve a different function than individual one-on-one. You can't, they don't do the same thing. You can't just put a bunch of people together and work on cooking and think it's going to translate in the same way that it would otherwise. Um, so, for instance, an example is the research shows us we have all these great social skills groups, okay? And they, they have these measures and they show progress in social skills. But then the people uh, go out into the community and nothing translates. There's no generalizability. And it's because it's all out of context. So if you do group interventions, make sure that you're, you're, you're not just trying to group a bunch of people together to work on a living skill. Uh, it's, it's, they just provide different experiences for people. Uh, and it's really about the social piece and the sharing piece and the inclusion piece. I think that's such a great distinction that there are benefits to doing group, but not necessarily maybe the application because of the contextual relevance. Um, yeah, I mean, it depends. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that's really helpful. I heard one, give yourself some self-compassion to yes. the huge digital divide and, and where possible, try and fill that resource gap. Um, if there are partners in the community um, who may help do that. I'm also here maybe doing things more in public. If you really want to get hands-on, that maybe you feel a little bit more comfortable if it's outside versus inside. And then I love that, that you guys are changing the intervention targets because when the situation changes, the need changes, and 
I, you know, I, I'd be curious, and I know that we're over on time, and folks may be wanting to to skip um, skip out, and 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 it, it is the end of the time. But I'd be curious to hear if, if the team on the line is is seeing that similar trend too, that the social isolation is a huge need. I know anecdotally in some of the permanent supportive housing sites um, where some of my colleagues are, they're really missing the groups and the gatherings and that morning coffee and check-in chats you know, that they used to do. And, and so it, it's been a challenge to try and recreate that for people. Yeah, I think it's a, for us, changing intervention target was major. It's a, like a new need emerged right. um, and it was a very important one. So it's not that the other things aren't still important. It's just that uh, this was like immediate. We needed to address it. Mm-hmm. We've been very successful at securing funds, though. I think we have like 50 or 60 distributed right now, which has been nice. That's, that's pretty phenomenal. I can hear yeah, that. Well, it's a big challenge, though. It's a big challenge. Um, so with the OT intervention right here is we're developing um, all sorts of structure uh, uh, instructions for the providers and the clients receiving it. Uh, so how to guide providers in doing the most effective uh, uh, training for these other apps, and then also um, some stuff on the client end for them to refer to after the provider leaves. Mm-hmm. But we're, uh, we're, we're currently developing that. We're not done with that yet. Great, I'm getting creative. Um, About to. So I, I'm, I'm looking at the time, and um, you know, again, Anton, this has been such a great training. I think the team has really- Thanks enjoyed. for having me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we'll, we'll have, we'll leave the room open for a little bit longer. I can sit on here for a bit longer just so folks can access the link. Um, and as I see the, the number of participants begin to dwindle, then I will, um, end the training. Um, and again, team, the, the, the training is recorded and the recording and the slides will be posted on our media archive page. Um, so give us a little bit of time to process that, um, and, and once we get the feedback, we'll be sure to share that with you. But everyone in the chat seems to be so thankful and, and finding this training very helpful. So, um, so thank you again for your time. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.